Hey everybody, on today's episode, we are discussing Die Hard from 1988. We do recommend you watch the movie ahead of time. It does make the listen a little bit more enjoyable. So Mike, what is Die Hard about? Well, John, let me set the scene. Die Hard takes place some 25 years after the harrowing events of Home Alone, where we once again find Kevin McAllister still wrestling with the trauma and PTSD created by the violent home invasion that shattered his childhood. Events which have created a battle within himself that has cost him his wife, family, and sanity. All of which sets the backdrop for a truly depraved tale where upon journeying to L.A. in a deluded attempt to win back his estranged wife, Kevin finds himself at a corporate Christmas party calling himself John McClane. The Christmas vibes trigger within him a spiral into his repressed past and sparks the full breaking of his mind. What follows is a horrifying act of violence against his fellow partygoers and an unsuspecting group of German tourists trying to get a tour of one of L.A.'s most iconic buildings, all woven into an allegorical tapestry about the nature of violence, the inescapability of our paths, and a stunning critique of America's healthcare system and the way it fails the weakest among us, our children. Oh my God, that was the end, wasn't it? What a a note to leave us on. Merry Christmas! Yippee-ki-yay! Welcome to this film could be your life. I loved that, but... Man! (laughs) I was just over here thinking like, oh, what a Hey everybody, welcome once again to This Film Could Be Your Life, a movie podcast where two friends take the movies that they love way too seriously. My name is Jonathan Devine. I'm joined as always by Mike Overstreet. Hello! And uh, as I'm sure you've gathered from Mike's excellent recounting of the plot, we are discussing Die Hard from 1988, an action movie directed by John, excuse me, John McTiernan, the legend. The screenplay was written by Jeb Stewart and Stephen E. D'Souza. Uh, it was based on the book Nothing, Nothing Lasts Forever by Roderick Thorpe. I don't know if you knew that, Mike. We're going to talk about that book a little bit. Uh, it stars Bruce Willis, Alan Rickman, Alexander Godunov, and Bonnie Bedelia. Cinematography was by Jean de Bont, and it was edited by Frank Yoroste and John Link. Mike, I want to read a, a single line from this, or excuse me, a couple lines from this Wikipedia uh, article on Die Hard just by way of introduction. Expectations for Die Hard were low. Some marketing efforts omitted Willis's image, ostensibly because the marketing team determined that the setting was as important as McLean. Upon its release, initial reviews were mixed. Criticism focused on its violence, plot, and Willis's performance, which is incredible, while McTiernan's direction and Rickman's portrayal of the character Hans Gruber were praised. Defying expectations, Die Hard grossed approximately $140 million, becoming the year's 10th highest-grossing film and highest-grossing action film. It received four Academy Award nominations, and has been since critically reevaluated and is now considered one of the greatest action films of all time. And then this like little addendum makes me laugh that they bothered to write this, and is also often named one of the best Christmas films of all time. Yeah. <laughs> I just love that the writers, the writer of Wikipedia just felt the need to sneak, sneak that one in there. Um, 
it's astounding to me that this movie had a mixed response at release. It makes Stupid. sense given where it falls in like the context of action movies. Um, which, you know, by way, we, we start with our history with the movie anyways. Uh, neither of us were obviously alive when this came out. What, Mike, when did you first watch this movie? Die. I, I, well, I'll answer them. I have no idea. That's the end yeah. of the day. Me neither. I feel like I've seen it forever, right? Yeah. Like it's just one of those movies. Yeah. I, yeah. I think I saw it first in, in probably middle school. Mike and I were talking before the recording. This was like a classic uh, sick day movie. Yeah. This princess bride, a couple others. Uh, but it was, it, yeah, I think from the first moment I saw it, I went in th- knowing like, this is one of the best action movies you'll ever see. Cause that was already 15 or 20 years after the fact, the thing I didn't know at the time when I first saw it is that this movie was a, a sort of coup within the world of action movies. Cause it came out, like we said, 1988, uh, this is at the tail end of one of the greatest decades in a genre ever because 80s action movies are, you know, this monolithic thing. You have Schwarzenegger, you have Stallone eating up every, everyone and everything. You have Commando and Predator and the Terminator and Rocky movies and Rambo. I mean, like every iconic action star, I feel like, like iconic, overly masculine action yeah. star <laughs> yeah. is birthed in the 80s, like reaches their peak moment. And into that moment, you get Die Hard with Bruce Willis looking, as I, I read someone put it somewhere, looking like my dad. Like, yes. he, you know, he, he yeah, looks, man. he's just a guy. Like, he does not look like Arnold Schwarzenegger. He does not look like this crazy action hero. And he doesn't act like it in the movie, which we're going to get into. Um, but people were skeptical. And as is becoming a theme, people are dumb and just did not really know what they were in store for uh, when it comes to this movie. Um Mike, did you have anything on, on your history? You said you you can't really remember even when you saw it. Um, so, yeah, do you have anything more on kind of your, your experience with this movie or or was it just kind of it was always there? Do you always loved it? Yeah, I think you make the good point that it was it was already canonical by the time that, you know, we yeah. get around to it. I In a weird microcosm, I, I do remember that I went through a similar, like, smaller version of the popular kind of experience of this film. And what I mean mm-hmm. by that is growing up, me and my best friend uh, would always watch the movies, obviously, that, like, his parents had at their house. And his parents were, like, obsessed with, like, Seagal and Van Damme. Weird. I don't nice. really know why. But, like, I Van- didn't even... Yeah. I didn't even think to mention them in my oh. in my eighties oh. action rundown, which well, is possibly a crime. Heresy. Yeah. Yeah. So like we I, I watched like a ton of Van Damme movies before I got to Die Hard, which is really funny. You're a big unironically, you're a big JVCD guy, right? Oh yeah, movie's great. Uh, all his other movies okay, are, yeah. are I was garbage. Just, curious. just garbage. <laughs> just the worst movies ever. Um but so like I Sorry, sorry, keep going. My introduction to action outside of like the stuff that I watched with my dad, you know, which is a lot more like Star Wars and stuff where it has action in it but it's not an action movie like my straight action palette was through this the parents of this friend of mine who were obsessed with garbage action movies and and i do remember at least seeing die hard and just being like this is so wildly not that stuff you know um and we'll get into the myriad of reasons why but even i mean the quality stands out immediately of just like this is not a poorly written like four pennies went into this uh, set piece action movie. This is a well yeah. thought out, well rounded, and like you said, with my dad at the center of it. Um, <laughs> so yeah, I, I loved it right away. It was even in, even though it was already well established, it was still 
in its own weird personal way groundbreaking to the uh um mm, the the courses of meals i had been force fed uh in my ignorance up until that moment and it it is hard to overstate how influential this movie was and still is uh from our standing in terms of people who have basically grown up on the movies that it spawned so yeah that's about it yeah i can't remember the exact year though it's strange this is kind of like jaws in that sense it was just always there you know it's funny though uh i actually feel like i did even then the opposite of the opposite from you in terms of i had only watched what i would term action adventure movies before this um it's a subtle difference i think action adventure versus pure action i think the difference is how casually uh a st- like like a gruesome death can befall like a neutral character sure. and that's like so that's maybe a weird designation no, but i yeah, say that because fair. as a kid like it was a really like like big moment when takagi just gets like shot in the right? face to the dome. in the face and like i was like you know it was like okay this isn't indiana jones this isn't you know this isn't star wars this is this is an action movie this is a, a purebred you know, we're in it for one night. We're not stat. Well, I was going to say we're not establishing these characters for a franchise. We'll get into that later. But, you know, it's a self-contained thing. It, it's yeah. not setting up all of this extra big world building. It's, it's you know, it's just a building. And in, in fact, that is obviously the main draw of this movie. Um, actually, at that point, we're getting into what works. So we'll wait. Well, no. Is there anything else you want to talk about the history of the movie? No, I'm ready. I'm ready to roll. Yeah, let's just get into it. Uh, We divide this podcast into a few different sections. We're going to start with why this movie works, move into what maybe holds it back, then we'll have some stray thoughts, and a lot later we will have uh, some essays Mike and I have each prepared. Uh, But to start with, we're going to talk about why this movie works, and, you know, I was kind of already talking about it, so let's just start maybe with the setting, Mike, because this movie very famously essentially takes place in one building. Like, there's, Mm. there's, there's moments outside of it, but... You know, this is an entire action movie uh, with all of these intricate stunts and differently staged scenes and aerial th- you know, helicopter moments and falling down air- elevator shafts and all this different stuff. But it's all happening contained in one building over one single night. That is so, so cool and so well executed and so thrifty. Like it's all these different things happening at once. Um, on the one hand, it obviously is just like a really cool visual experience. I, one thing I picked up on was returning to the same settings over and over again, but seeing them gradually change over the course of the mm, film. Yeah. So yeah. like the way that you get used to that room where they're having the party and, you know, you see it when it's a party room, you see it as it becomes a a hostage kind of standoff room. Then when the building blows up, John has John McClane has to run back through there. Uh, once it's it's you know been totally destroyed and now he's fighting guys in it, uh, and, and that happens all over the building. You get, you get to know the lobby, the safe room, whatever that weird room is that the Takagi gets shot in, like the conference room or something. I guess the rooftop, uh, obviously all these shafts, all of these you know construction rooms. It's just really clever how they make so much use out of this space, um, both from a budget perspective, because they also use the actual Fox Plaza and mostly shot and essentially the entire movie was on location, which is just a really smart way to save money on something like this. And just from a, you know, from the stakes of the whole thing, you just, you're so uh, 
you get to keep everything kind of in your head in a really nice way. You're not getting stretched out and having to keep track of all these different situations and moments. I just can't say enough about it because it's also something that doesn't seem to happen that much anymore. Like, I, you know, we, we live in the age of blue screens and digital sets. And it's like, in a way, it's so cheap to make something that is bigger in scope that everyone does, right? That yeah. no one thinks to just make a movie in a really small scale uh, it's also worth noting, I don't want, you know, I'll send it to you. I don't want to talk over you too much, but it's also worth noting that that idea of self-contained action movie is probably the single most influential thing about this movie. Sure. Right? Yeah. That this, this created 15 years. I mean, the joke was that, um, and it wasn't really a joke, but that you would have uh, a studio exec, you would say to them, well, I want to make Die Hard on a bus and now you have speed. I want to make Die Hard on a boat, and now you have Speed too. I should have thought of a different movie besides the sequel, but you know what I mean. Yeah, you, yeah. You would keep having these situations of like, oh, well, we could just do that. Have a small centralized location. Things go bad, and someone has to work their way out of it. And there you go. You have 15 years of amazing action movies and kind of a mini genre created. Um, Mike, what, what what do you have? The set, the general setting of Die Hard, not Katomi Plaza. I'm not sure if we ever said the name. Yeah, uh, what a cool looking building too. It's perfect. It is, and it's real, and all that stuff. But anyway, um, you know, it's the skyscraper is brilliant. You know, you were talking about how most of the film is within it, and and that always that really always catches my attention. But especially this rewatch, that you know, the the opening sequence, which I I actually like. A lot of people find it slow, but I actually really like the tension that it's building. Um, but yeah, mm-hmm. essentially that opening sequence is the only thing that takes place outside of it. You know, you have this entire setup of the characters on that drive over to the Christmas party. And then he walks through into the building and it starts foreshadowing basically this entire com- like coming story of cow and mouse action, right? Uh, it sets mm-hmm. up the camera, yeah. security, the sketchy people hanging around, Ellis doing cocaine, we'll get back to Ellis. And then like the, tr- <laughs> the truck arrives, they shoot the security guard, the building locks down and bam, it's off to the races. And from that point, forward you're pretty much contained inside the building and the building becomes a labyrinth which is what i love about this movie is that it really does feel like a maze and like you said you're going to come to turns that you've already come to before and you're going to watch him navigate them in different ways or they're going to change because of what has taken place in this chase that's running through essentially this giant maze complex right which is wild that you can create the sense of like a, a mythological story of a person like being chased <laughs> by a mentor from like a, an industrial complex is essentially what's taking place. And, and that's just brilliant. And, and you already touched on some of the brilliant direction in which um, they capture these really tight knit, really claustrophobic areas like air vents and, and elevator shafts and all this stuff. But what I always come back to is just how exciting that labyrinth concept is for creating this very small scaled cat and mouse action flick. I mean, I think there's a couple of things that that struck me this time around that I've never really thought of, but it's like that essential framework and setting is what sets up like the MacGyver quality of the film. We are going to watch John McClane basically uh, collect random assets, uh, assorted items from around this corporate office. That is what he's going to eventually use down the, the line of the film to get out of his next mess, right? You're going to see him have yeah. to work, do things like lowering the body in the elevator so he can get the list of the terrorist names or basically find duct tape to tape the gun to the back of his head. All of this stuff is related to this brilliant choice to have this contained, compact, and yet vast setting of intricate tunnels and connected points 
um, full of random objects. And it's wild to think about that one choice kind of setting up a believable reason for why almost everything else takes place in the film. But I think it's pretty crucial. Mm. And I think it's actually, yeah. as you already said, one of the most brilliant choices of the entire film. It's funny because it's it's the kind of thing that you wonder why no one did it before, right? Yeah. It, it's There's so many things, there's so many great ideas behind that one idea. Um, it's also a modification. I, I referenced earlier that this is actually based on a novel. Um, I, we, we may or may not get into it later, but the novel is actually a sequel to a novel that was already made into a film starring Frank Sinatra. He was actually offered this role when he turned it down because he was way too old and he just didn't want to do it. They rewrote the script into Die Hard. Um, but one key difference from the novel is it also takes place over three days in one building. Mm. And so mm-hmm. I think like both of those decisions, again, keep it into just compressing all of this tension, all of this action, all of this excitement into one building, one night. It's just, it's so good. It's such a good setting. And it makes sense why it got ripped off uh, for the next 15 years. Um, you think we're ever going to do speed, Mike? I'm just curious. I like speed. Yeah, I want to do point do break speed. first, but I like speed. Mm, I, you know, I feel like we got to work work with the better movies first, and then and then we work our way down over time. I, that, uh, that's the conceit of this I whole show, I think Keanu right? Reeves would be very upset that you just said that, but okay, we'll move on. We'll move on, because you're wrong. Keanu Reeves would take, Keanu Reeves would take speed over, over point break, I'm sure. I'll ask him. Um... <laughs> <laughs> setting let's talk about the characters because we've already started yeah. referencing them sure. a little bit uh let's talk, do you let's talk wanna, about ellis this is the wherever, ellis hour i was gonna say wherever i was gonna say wherever you want to start if you want to start with ellis we could start with ellis, ellis i'm happy to do ellis so. is why this movie works um hans he... <laughs> bubby <laughs> i like how i'm I... your white knight it's I'm, an amazing moment. I'm usually Sorry, the one ahead. doing impersonations here, but here you go, John. You needed Ellis to here unlock the key. It's, he's the I key. I needed Ellis. That line <laughs> is the most stupid, amazing. That character so, is such a great creation. He's, he's so just, smarmy. He's so the 80s. slimy. He's the 80s wrapped, corporate he's the 80s America 80s. wrapped up into a person. I think in my head, I sort of combine him and, uh, God, what's his name? Is it, is it Patrick, Patrick Bateman? American Psycho. I combine him and American Psycho. Sure. I see uh, it. Into the same person. Uh, I'm just like, yeah, you know. In my mind, Ellis just exists as like this, like avatar for the definition of white male mediocrity. Where, like, he thinks that he's the guy to get them out of this mess is just the example of, of just, like, the white white men just being like, oh, I'm probably good at this. And it's just, like, just finally, being trash. Yeah, finally just being the worst. someone killed someone for having that delusion. <laughs> thank, thank you, <laughs> Die Hard. <laughs> Why uh, do you think you're the one? <laughs> just as long as we're talking about Alice, another fun fact about him, the, the Bubby line was improvised and sure, uh, so the Alan cocaine. Rickman's confused. Alan Rickman's confused expression was genuine. That's like, that was just Alan Rickman being like, what, what, what did you say? Uh, yeah. Which is, which is incredible. I love every single part of that. Um, what other care? Mike, did you, I mean, we'll, I'll keep talking about Ellis as long right, as you no, want to keep no, no, talking no. about Ellis. I'll, I'll dump it. So I, I know you want to cook when it comes to Alan Rickman. So I'm going to, I'm going to save him. I'm going to save Hans for you, bud. Uh, Bubby, as we say in this podcast. Thank you. As we say, uh, that that is what we say on this podcast. Hold on, yeah, I, I need right. a day of coke break real quick. Um, 
Okay. Okay. okay good okay, to know. I'm ready. I'm ready. I'm in the in the zone. Um. So yeah, what character do I want to talk about? Well, there's this guy Ellis. Uh. No. Okay. So John McClane. <laughs> John McClane is kind of a stunning achievement. I think it's it's it is definitively the choice of this movie, the successful choice of this movie that we as people coming to it late miss the weight of to a degree, which is yeah. You know. Bruce Willis at the time of this movie was definitively not a movie star. He was definitively not an action star. In fact, he was best known for a television series that was largely just okay. And when you yeah. see like the people who were considered, Man, there's for some, this there's role, some moonlighting fan out there who's so mad at you. Though. They're very upset. He's like, okay, okay. <laughs> fine, <laughs> fine. But, but it's, it was incredible. It's, it's wild. Cause he's up against like the action stars of the eighties. When you go and look at people who were, who tried out for this, particular role and and for him to get chosen you get why the production company was like we're not going to advertise that this guy's in this movie and that's before you even get to the fact that he's like he's got a dad bod you know he is certainly not arnold and stallone he does not look like he can beat up terrorists any degree so it's hard for us to get in the mindset of how stunning casting bruce willis for this is and yet it's maybe other than like you said the general framework that's going to get aped for the next 20 years it might be one of the most stunning successes of the film because yeah. what it does is it creates the, in my, as far as I know, can think of the first, like every man action hero and Bruce Willis brings this normal dude thrust into impossible circumstances to life in such a holistic and, and just human way that mm. you, you, like we look back on that and say, well, it's Bruce Willis. Of course he does a great job, but like, it's hard for me to even imagine walking in and finding yeah. this character who's so deeply average, but so thoroughly brought to life by this almost no-name actor. And, you know, yeah. it's everything he does. His attire, the wife beater, the fact that he forgets his shoes. You know, it's the self-talk throughout the film, which is always my favorite part of the movie, is his little, like, pep talk. Come out to California. We'll have, we'll have a few laughs. Well, yeah, it's incredible. Yeah. Every, yeah. Single, every single moment of that, yeah. And his entire vibe I, is essentially the epitome of how did I get into this Met right before I take a long drag of my cigarette, which is why this movie rules, because that's what makes it so exciting, is you can, like, put yourself into this audience stand-in character that's actually relatable and feels... Like, I could be him even though I can't. And that's, to me, yeah. that is one of the singular greatest, like, just 100% of this entire film. Well, and and I, I completely agree with everything you say. This is where the context is so, so critical as well. Because, uh, you know, again, just to reiterate, this is the opposite of an 80s action star. Yeah. You do not relate to Arnold Schwarzenegger, like, well, I mean, rolling I do, in on but... Commando. You do, obviously. But, but us mere mortals... Uh, can only can only <laughs> gander it in all. I think the key moment um, it, it hit me rewatching the movie uh, most recently. The key moment for the McLean character, and it, it's actually so on the nose. I almost want to believe it's intentional. But there's this. So, so when he's in the in the room with bare feet or whatever, and <laughs> when Hans invades the party, and they start with the gunfire and, and rounding everyone up into hostages, right? Yeah. I think there's this unbelievably critical moment which is mclean takes out his gun opens the door a little bit sees what's happening he looks into the party with the hostage or sorry with the the germans rounding up all the hostages and stuff and he looks to his left and he sees the exit door and he looks left and he looks right and we actually don't see what he decides but when they go in a few seconds later he's not there we cut and the camera pans over the door and he's run away yeah that is such an amazing moment 
because that is the divergence of 80s action and 90s action. The fact that he chooses not to go, because again, Schwarzenegger, um, Seagal, um, I just feel weird putting him in the same sense as Schwarzenegger, but whatever. (laughs) Um, Stallone, all those guys in their movies are like, yeah, I'm running in. I'm good, you know. I'm I'm getting a position. I'm I'm taking guys down. I'm waiting in the. I'm waiting in here. But the key thing is, McLean is not a superhero. He's not invulnerable. He looks at that and he says, "I can't run in. I'll die." So instead, I'm going to retreat. I'm going to gather my resources. I'm going to talk to myself like I'm going crazy because I'm in a high stress situation. And you're right. It's it's makes this this character into someone vulnerable. And relatable. And he's still, I mean, and let's be clear, he's still like a handsome guy. Like he's still a movie star. Sure. But again, as compared with what we had been getting, it was like, oh, but this is actually a vulnerable character. This person can absolutely be killed and absolutely goes through the ringer. I mean, that that glass in the feet scene is still pretty rough. That is not that has not like uh, what what what's the term I'm looking for? It's not degraded with age at all. No. In fact, I think it's almost a little harrowing for today's yeah. audiences for a PG-13 movie. No Marvel movie is pulling that. Is what I'm saying. Well, and again, uh, it, oh, it, it's not PG-13. This are, but you know what I mean. It's the relatability of the character because, like, <laughs> John, you and I are the kind of people who might forget our shoes <laughs> and then be like, "Well, this was a mistake." <laughs> like, well, this has all been down. And then also finds no way of, of solving that problem the entire rest yeah. of the evening. Yeah, it, it's um, a small detail, but it, it's a brilliant one. And it's it's like you said, I mean, he's vulner- he's fragile. Like, and yeah. and it's also a, a triumph of Bruce Willis in this movie is that you feel that fragility. Like, by the end of this movie, when he's talking to his, his love, Al, over the radio, and he's basically confessing that he doesn't think he's getting out of this, like, he looks... In terms of a physical performance, he looks like he has been murdered. Like he has had the crap yeah. kicked out of him. He has every inch of energy sucked out of him, bled out of him through every cut and nick that he has picked up over the course of not being invincible through this hellish situation. And it's just brilliant. It's just absolutely and weakness. Right? Critically, he's still cracking jokes. He's yeah. still he's still charismatic. He's still charming. This isn't gritty, to be clear, but it is. It is more grounded, I guess would be the word. It, it makes our characters more vulnerable. Yeah. Um, also, just as a side note, like I, I always loved this quote. Quentin Tarantino, I saw an interview with him about Pulp Fiction. I may have mentioned this in our Pulp Fiction episode, but he said the thing he loved about Bruce Willis is he was like, Bruce to me is like a 1950s movie star. Mm. He's just plain charismatic on screen. Yeah. He's, if he's yeah. just on screen... You're just like, oh, this guy just—he just seems like a charismatic person. Yeah, you know, I just kind of want to be around him. Like, just, just—he just seems fun and cool. And it's—it's such an X factor. It's such a like—I don't know how to quantify it. By definition, it's not quantifiable. But whatever that weird random movie, you know, that or that esoteric movie star thing is, he so has it. And uh, yeah, and I just—I've always loved Bruce Willis to be honest with you. So I just, yeah, this is. This wasn't my introduction to him. I think I actually saw Pulp Fiction before this movie. Um, but it still was a really, like, it, it's just such a great creation from him yeah. in, in such a great moment. Uh, I do want to know, by the way, he does have some in- a little bit more emotional nuance and some real emotional moments than other action stars. 
which is kind of my segue into uh, Holly Gennaro or slash Holly McLean, which there's some weird like gender politics stuff that will probably come up a little bit later mm, in what baby it. holds this movie back. Boobs. But I like the character. I like the fact that she, uh, I-, I like the fact that they're sort of, struggle with each other actually feels again pretty grounded um what it this is something that's like very i would not have had this feedback uh until probably the last five years because i think i've just become more emotionally nuanced with age for lack of a better term but that argument at the beginning is pretty great and which is also writing i guess but the way that they um that so i'm talking about the argument between holly and and john mcclain right yeah um and I'm calling this out because, again, this is a character moment that I don't really think happens in the standard 80s action movie before this point. Because you have the way that they are sort of excited to see each other. When they're trying to communicate their affection for each other, they kind of can't figure out what to say. Like, is this really awkward energy? But once he decide, once he decides to make an issue out of the last name thing... Suddenly they're arguing and they can't say enough words. They're both yelling at each other within 20 seconds. But then when she walks out of the room, the first thing he does is he says to himself, God, you're so, that was really immature. You know, like he realizes like, oh, I'm being stupid here. All of that is a very human, very relatable, very understandable, emotional series of events that again, I just think is really cool to get from characters in what is just on the surface, a dumb action movie uh so yeah I, I don't know if you had anything else on holly uh holly or i guess john mcclain if we just wanted to wrap wrap those two up yeah i think the holly mcclain one i don't have much more to add other than you know she does carry some emotional weight um and and some sexual politics that we'll get into later um <laughs> but yeah there's like a scene that always sticks out in terms of her performance which is when she's talking to hans after she realizes they've killed her boss and she kind of like goes toe to toe for him and doesn't back down. And you kind of get this insight into um, the fact that, oh, yeah, this this is a highly competent character that is engaging in this corporate world. And she's not just like, um, you know, doll, hey, doll or whatever of the action movies of the 80s. Um, this is a character of depth who is good at her job and as can can rise to the moment in her own way herself. And the film is insightful and in giving us small glimpses into that. And not just, you know, one, making her stupid or two, making like her the bad guy and ultimately what's happened in their marriage. I think there's something very interesting for the 80s that they are so deeply on her side in terms of like she took this job because she should have. And he's the baby. He's the one who's being a baby about like my career, you know, I just think that's cool. It's just a cool aspect of the character, even if it's not always handled super well for a sense of the 80s. There is actually a character in this movie mike that i think is is just as if not more important to the success of the movie than john mcclain you're talking about ellis and right? that i'm talking about ellis okay, ellis i yeah. think is We're the back. backbone of the film we are obviously talking about the truly the late great we've had two episodes with him by the way because we did mm-hmm. galaxy quest as well the the late the great alan rickman as hans gruber uh, this is such a key, iconic, amazing role and truly one of my favorite characters ever. Yeah. That I actually wrote my essay on this. So we're going to hold off a lot of our discussion of Gruber the character until Hans. later. Uh, but for the moment, we can talk a little bit about Alan Rickman in the movie. Um, 
a lot of, almost everyone knows this, but just in case you don't, this is very famously the first ever film role that Alan Rickman dude. had. It's crazy. Which is just there's there's literally nothing else like that. He rolled in and batted a hundred. Because yeah. again, this is one of the best on-screen villains in any movie ever, I think. Any action movie, any any kind of movie. And he's electrifying. He's it's it's kind of like well, you know, we're, it's funny we talked about uh, Dark Knight last week because similar vibes for very different reasons. Where the Joker is surprising because he's genuinely terrifying. I think I think Gruber and Alan Rickman is surprising because he's genuinely charming. You will have so much fun with this character over the course of the movie. Yeah, and. That is all down to Rickman's portrayal. Because yeah. that's the other thing. I cannot think of another person who could have pulled this off in quite this way, right? No, no. Who can be genuinely kind of scary. Like he 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 you know, he throws some weight around and he's he's doesn't hesitate to do, you know, technically evil things. But again, at every moment, you're having so much fun that you're just you're with him. You you I'd watch him hold up a building for five hours long, you know? I'm I'm in. Um yeah. Yeah, what, what what do you have on Mr. Rickman? Yeah, he's just wildly overqualified for this movie, quite yeah. frankly. <laughs> and it, it, it shows, and it it's prophetic for where the villain role is going to go for the next 20 years. Um, you know, it is it is fortuitous that we just watched and talked about The Dark Knight. Because, you know, you don't have Heath Ledger as the Joker doing what he's doing in that movie without this character. This is just like the foundational villain, which is what I'm sure we'll talk about. Um, yeah. and t- for these kind of movies and, and a lot of other movies too. Um, what always stands out to me is like you're saying, he captures the two sides of the, uh, delightfully witty charmer and the, the menacing psychopath. And he flips between them so wonderfully, so delightfully, so menacingly. I mean, between the, I'm going to count to three, there will not be a four line and then the moment where he's acting like the scared american and then like the moment he thinks he has power flips back it, it's just like a, a sensational performance and it's so much fun i think that's the word i also want to make or good no i just want to make sure i include that word it's fun like every time yeah. he, he heath ledger is magnetic because he's terrifying this guy is magnetic because he's just so much fun to spend time with as an evil it's person. incredible and it's wonderful. And I also want to shout out, you know, we are we rag on Hollywood a lot, but this movie proves that they remembered that white people can be terrorists too. And that's refreshing. Yeah. So. It's all, I love when the Germans get to be back. I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> we need another World War. We need more Hans Krueger. We need another We've it's always been, been saying <laughs> I want to call out, you're just talking about fun moments with Hans. I want to, I want to call out, because this was apparently a, ad, there's a lot of ad-libbing in this movie in general. So, um, in general, like the the actors seem to have had a really big impact on the characters, which I think is probably a huge part of why this movie oh, works. For sure. One of my favorite ad lib lines is uh when he's at the party and he's eating this is it's also ad lib that he's eating from the buffet as he says, So sadly, Mr. Takagi will not be joining us for the rest of his life. And he kind of just <laughs> rolls through the back half of the line. <laughs> Stuff like that. It's just so good. And like you said, it's so fun. You're just oh, having yeah. fun when you're around him. Yeah, I always um, I always laugh with the... And when Alexander saw the breadth of his domain, he wept for there were no more words to conquer. And there's a pause and he goes, benefits of a classical education. It's just like, Benefits of a classical education. wonderful, yes. man. It's wonderful. You, you love every single moment with him. 
yeah, we're going to talk about the character more later, but, yeah. but Grickman just kills it. It's incredible. Um, not too much left. Reginald Valjohnson, uh, getting in there, huh? You big, you big family matters, man, Mike. Eh, not really, but that's just cause it was before my time. That's just cause you're, yeah, you're a bad well, my, person. My we parents, all know it. My parents didn't watch sitcoms. So I honestly, mm. like all eighties and seventies sitcoms have like no foundation in my life. Cause I only watched any of their episodes when I was like 20. And that's not a good go. time to arrive at such TV shows for the most part. It's so. it's really not. They're really designed to be watched by families yeah. and like, you know, be vaguely entertaining for the parents and extremely entertaining for the kids. We were definitely a sitcom family. I actually don't know if we watch Family Matters that much, but I did watch it. Um, yeah. But yeah, I, he does I do, a good job. I do like him. Tough I, moments that we'll get to later. We'll get with to the, later. For sure. The yeah, character yeah. has some flaws. But man, I thought... If there was a romance in this story, it was between him and uh, him and John. So he brought that. I mean, I'm going to be honest with you. Life. That's that's a little bit blasé because like everyone knows that. Like yeah. that is the that's the commentary from day one that when they see each other and having not seen each other, recognize each other. Yeah. And then embrace. That is a truly heartwarming moment. If this was a more that is also very strong romantic overtones, which if is this not was bad. A more progressive film. They would have committed to that, but it's not. So. Oh, well. I'm disappointed, uh, but no, great character. I, I actually do really love his relationship with yeah. John and the way that he is the only one backing him up, which brings us to the, uh, I just wrote slimy reporter slash slimy deputy chief slash slimy <laughs> FBI agents. This is part of like this weird, other weird eighties trend of like really shady uh, authority figures who, who range between like incredibly incompetent like you think about again the deputy chief, you think about the the radio operator when McLean yeah. calls in. It's a mess. Calls in, yeah. Uh, you think about the reporters who I guess maybe aren't incompetent as much as just like evil and just trying to you know doing whatever they can to get uh, to get in uh, their fifteen minutes or whatever. Um, yeah, all of those characters are great, and I just don't have that much to say about them other than they're it's they're very archetypically eighties. I guess was the biggest point that I wanted to make because it's it's yeah. so weird to me that that's true. Like well, you think they, about Ghostbusters and stuff, it's just a very common theme in the eighties. And I and I think this is where the tone of the movie is critical because if this movie wasn't trying to be fun and was actually trying to say anything, um, this would be firmly in the what didn't work about this movie because there are just like agree, a yeah. lot of unbelievably stupid people in this movie outside the main characters and it's it would be distracting if this was like a serious plot it would be uh, yeah. it would take me out of the film in terms of how stupid they are in the daily yeah. moments of their lives much less a crisis situation so the fact but, that the deputy chief of the LAPD is trying to get a uh, terrorist release from prison like is is, is like like is yeah. a bumbling character on the phone like oh, I don't know if we got that name right it was Amon A M O like and you're like no 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 that yeah. character that guy is never doing that you're right though it's fun so we're okay but yeah but yeah and I, I yeah, love the Johnsons I, I, I like right that point. Uh, this is Agent Johnson <laughs> no the other one I mean it's just great There's no the other one I had that line yeah. I had that line down yeah yeah uh yeah there there's a lot of great little moments uh but I mean I think that does it for the characters Mike do yeah. you want to talk about Carl you want to talk about, uh, is Carl the one who stands up again at the end? Oh, uh, oh yes. Yes. He has okay. the, the, the T2 moment. Carl's the best character of the movie. Yeah, yeah he's the Terminator, baby. I mean, that's what I'm talking about. Hasta la vista. What a performance. Uh, what a performance. <laughs> I, I what, truly what an incredible creation. Just wrote 
the Germans. I had I did not know his name was Carl until I looked up IMBD. I, I don't know, man. But, I don't. They're not individual characters in my mind. They're just the uh, the. The Aryan Germans who die one at a time, and that's about all they do. Fun fact: movie. most of them aren't German. Uh, the casting whatever, call sure. was for tall, tall men. So that, that checked out. They were, were that. Guys. Uh, also, shout outs to Argyle. Don't know where, don't know where that actor went. I uh, feel like he just kind of disappeared. But mm. uh, good moments, good you times. You thought that you, you're putting Argyle in what worked? Well, sort of. I have some <laughs> thoughts later. Interesting. Interesting. He okay. he may or may not come up in both. He may or may not make an appearance later. I like Argyle. I, sure. I have fun. Okay. You, you, he's, he's fun. He's fun. Okay. Um, all right. I only have two more things. Uh, we somehow haven't just said it. And to be honest, Mike, I don't have very much written here because this is by definition something that you can't talk about too much. Uh, but this Club. movie is directed. Yeah, Fight Club. This movie is directed by John McTiernan, who uh, basically would make a name for himself with four or five movies as one of the greatest action movie directors ever. <laughs> Um, specifically we have Predator, Die Hard, and Hunt for Red October, hey, I've heard which of is those. just, just an absolutely, that's back to back to back too. That's wild. Which is bonkers. Yeah, that's crazy. Um, uh, then went to jail for like 20 years for tax fraud, I believe. Yeah. So kind of a, Bummer. a weird coda on John McTiernan's sort of story, but, uh, but all that to say, the dude is an incredible action filmmaker, and this yeah. is an incredible action movie. Yeah. Again, there's just not going to be that much to say because it's like we can recount scenes, I guess. I, I want to shout out moments like uh, McLean running from the one guy. He's in the elevator shaft. He sees the other, the vent that he's trying to jump to. When he jumps, he misses that one and grabs the one beneath it. That's an incredible moment. It's a great yeah. stunt. It's harrowing. It's exciting. It looks real. It looks gritty. Just things like that are just like people, other act, other directors just don't do that. Like you don't get these great little action setups. The little, the, the mini John Woo scene when um, right after Hans is pretended to be an American, when they're all just shooting up, uh, you know, shooting up where, where John McClane is and he's shoot the glass and now there's glass everywhere and he's got to get out and blah, blah, blah. Like stuff like that. It's just really good action. Yeah. There's, I don't know. There's not much to say, but it's just so good. And it's so fun and so compelling. And even as I've been, I've been in a little bit of a slump myself in terms of my enjoyment of action movies. I'm just, I'm, it's just not necessarily my vibe these days. I get a little bored with them. I find, but I was pretty much in on this movie, even on the rewatch in the last week for, for essentially every moment. Like the action yeah. is still compelling and unbelievably fun. Uh, yeah, I don't know. But do you have anything on that, Mike? Anything more? Yeah, no, I mean, uh, he he really does make them feel real. And that's just a testament to the direction, the stunt work. You know, I, I, I noticed in particular this time around that beyond just even the, the actual action sequences, he also is kind of a master at tension within some of these sequences. Oh, yeah. Like when, oh, yeah. when he's in the, uh, the air duct and the German is pushing up on him with the rifle butt, uh, Carl yeah. is his name. Let me make sure I say his name. He's a person. He's <laughs> an individual. I don't um, totally remember if that is Carl, but keep going. Uh, so he's pushing up on it. And that's like a legitimately tense scene. And it's really yeah. well shot. It's so hard to light a event, quite frankly, and to make that captivating uh, filmmaking. 
But he does. And, and not to mention, it gives us one of the most iconic shots of this movie, which is when he's holding the lighter up in front of him. But yeah, it's it just stuff like that is an action filmmaker who knows what they're doing. And we talk about it all the time. This is the last thing I'll say is we talk about all the time this idea of good action filmmakers always give you a sense of place and space, despite how mm. hectic their scenes are. And that is how I feel about John McClane going through, again, this labyrinth with a bunch of turns and a bunch of little nooks and crannies. I always feel like I know where he is in the building in relation to these other characters. And that's that's yeah. an achievement. That's just that's that's an expert kind of weaving his way through a film. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Love it. Love it. Love it. Love it. Fun totally fact. Agree. One fun fact yeah. about action sequence. Um <laughs> when they when old our boy Hans dies, Alan Rickman yeah. was dropped seventy feet in that scene, and they dropped him before they were supposed to do it. So his look on his face of sheer horror is real because he got dropped unexpectedly seventy feet. And that's amazing. Isn't that great? <laughs> that's just Apparently, amazing. Rickman was somewhat upset about that, I which is maybe too. fair. <laughs> but uh, you know what? Film lasts forever, and it's an amazing moment. Yeah the, yeah, the the actual surprise you see in his face is genuine because he is incredibly surprised. Um, one last thing on the action is is the way that also the movie keeps raising like the level of its big stunts. Like I actually kind of forgot somehow because mm. I, I feel like I think about some of the smaller stunts a lot more. I forgot that there's a scene at the end of this movie where uh, McLean ties himself to the fire hose. Yeah, dude. Jumps off the roof as it's exploding. And all of that sounds incredibly ridiculous, partially because it is, but they actually, they earn it in terms of like, they, they, they slowly walk you to that point. If that was in the first 10 minutes of the movie, that's a Stallone movie, right? That's a Schwarzenegger sure. movie. That's the climax though. And we got there in very measured ways. Like we, you know, we set up the explosions. We set up Hans wants to make it look like he's just been killed. We set up the FBI agents on the roof. We set up John trying to get the people off the roof. We set up the blah, blah, blah. And so finally you earn that moment when he talking to himself, what I think he says I swear to God, I'll never go up a tall building again my entire life. Just let me live as he ties it around him and then jumps off. And then the thing like rips off and gets caught on the railing and he has to shoot the window and jump through. But then even once he jumps through, it's pulling him back. So now he has to stop himself from it pulling. It's just great, right? It's just so, it's just such good physical filmmaking. Yeah. I love it. Every single moment of it um, is just a, a treasure. Um, I actually have one last thing. And to be honest, we've already been talking about this a lot. Sure. So it may or may not be worth like get diving into too much, but this is just an extremely well-written movie. Yeah. Uh, and, and again, there's a lot of ad-libbing going on too, but from, from things like you're talking about, like the way that situations are constructed and set up, my essay will actually go into that a little bit too, but from the way that situations are constructed and set up, it's actually... It's actually, I would say, very Hitchcockian in certain moments of this movie in terms of the way that it, it cranks up tension. Yeah. It cranks up what you know that the that the people on screen may not know. Um, the way that just people interact. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of really funny lines. There's a lot of great moments. It's just a very smart, well-written movie. I just want to call that out, I guess. I don't know if you have any specific comments on that, Mike. Uh, just about every conversation between John McClane and Hans Graber is amazing is exceptional uh, and i have yeah. i have some quotes i would just like to read yeah hit, hit us with some quotes mine. 
Still the cowboy. Mr. McLean, Americans all alike. Well, this time John Wayne does not walk off into the sunset with Grace Kelly. It's Gary Cooper, asshole. <laughs> oh, another jo great job, McLean lied. Sister Teresa called me Mr. McLean in the third grade. My friends call me John. You're neither shithead. <laughs> <laughs> These all sound so dumb on their own. I know. And they may, may so or may not good. be dumb in, in context too. But with coming in the context from, from Bruce Willis, they're amazing. Every yeah. one of these lines lands. I love Yeah, it. this is Go just ahead. another Sorry. one from Hans about midway through the film. And it's just like a, actually a really good line. But you have me at a loss. You know my name, but who are you? Just another American who saw too many movies as a child. Another orphan of a bankrupt culture who thinks he's John Wayne, Rambo, Marshall Dillon. I was always kind of partial to Roy Rogers, actually. I really like those sequined shirts. I mean, that's just like, that's great. It's and great. That, and, and this is a it's part great. of the script that we haven't talked about. But this movie is like very self-aware of itself as a movie and very self-referential and also referential to other movies. And it's constantly kind of like talking about the legacy of action filmmaking as it yeah. is upending action filmmaking. And there's just like yeah. a, a really cool quasi existential quality to this script. That's so much fun. It's like these characters yeah. know what we, the types, the typecasts and the character molds that we want them to fit into. They reference those molds and then break them. And that's just so clever. An unbelievably clever yeah. part of the writing. Totally agree. I actually do have three quotes that I, I, I had kind of in other spaces, but I, I'm going to bring them up here real quick. Sure, do One it. of them I already referenced earlier. Um, when McLean tries to call the police on the radio and the supervisor at the station says, Attention, whoever you are, this channel is reserved for emergency calls only. No fucking shit, lady! Do I sound like I'm ordering a pizza? <laughs> I love that line. I love that line so much. Oh, my God. Um, speaking, and then another incredible line, and actually one that keeps them, it, it serves a dual, a dual role because in addition to being funny, it keeps the movie very light. Because after that huge explosion, um, the deputy chief just staring up at the helicopter that's been trashed says, we're going to need some more FBI guys, I guess. Uh, which is such an amazing understatement of the situation. Um, and then finally, this, is, this one again is actually not necessarily funny, but I think just the delivery is amazing. When Holly Gennaro says, to, she's talking to Hans near the end. She says, after all your posturing, all your little speeches, you're nothing but a common thief. And with real vitriol, Gruber says, I am an exceptional thief, Mrs. McLean. And since I'm moving up to kidnapping, you should be more polite. Ugh. I love that line. So I love that good. delivery of that line, too. So uh, yeah, good. It's incredible. Uh, oh, man. Yeah. So it's also good. That's, that's really all I have for why this works. I think, Mike, you said you had to... One or two small things? Yeah, I got one. One. And that is uh this score is a delight. This score oh, is yeah. is so much fun. Yeah, yeah. It's a it's it's actually so well fitted to the rest of the movie tonally. It's a perfect mix of like playfulness and menace. You know, everyone loves the riffing that takes place on like Ode to Joy and mm -hmm. the way that it kind of has like this dark cello that mixes into some really kind of ominous and then e even really loud beats at various parts of the movie just wonderful and, and to shout out a specific scene it's the classic it's iconic i don't really need to talk about this because everyone's seen it but the scene where they cut the power and the score builds the vault opening and he says merry christmas 
is just such a good intertwining of thematic elements, plot elements, character acting, and then again the score. Just working in yeah. unison perfectly. Wah, chef's kiss. I totally agree. I will note, I think this did cause uh, an entire generation of people to connect Ode to Joy with Christmas when there is, in fact, no such yeah. connection. They're totally yeah, yeah, unrelated. Yeah, yeah that's uh, funny. And when I say that, that includes me. I To this day, like, when I hear Ode to Joy, uh, that is, or, or, you know, the, the, the last movement of the Ninth Symphony, I, I do kind of, like, in my head, I'm like, oh, I feel a little Christmassy. I'm like, wait. Why? Like, uh, you know, it, it's not actually, but it's just funny how that works. But you're right. It's an incredible score. I love how Hans is like humming it through almost mm-hmm. the whole movie. Uh, yeah, it's great. Uh, anything else, Mike, for why this movie works? No, that's all I got. All right. Well, let's get into what maybe holds this movie back. Let's talk I don't about have that many boomer things. Boomer politics. But those are most of the things I have. Thank you. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't have that many things. What I do have, for the most part, I called them tough 80s moments i have, okay. I have what i consider like oh, it's just kind of a very 80s that's just something that basically i think there's several things in this movie that would have not read registered on the radar at all for someone in the 80s but in 2022 is like huh that's an interesting moment i was i want to start with the low stakes one um hey mike you've had a couple couple kids if someone said to Ricky, if Ricky asked someone, hey, I think I can I can go for a glass of wine, and someone said, that baby will be tending bars soon, uh, when she was pregnant, I should have clarified, <laughs> you would maybe have some questions. You'd be a little bit like worried, right? Like I'm not I'm not I'm not a parent. I've never been around uh, pregnant women that much, but it's not good, right? Drinking a lot when you're when you're pregnant. We're no. all on board. And neither is okay. smoking cigarettes by the back. Does she smoke with the with the? I don't know, man. <laughs> I just know everyone smokes in this movie in all places. <laughs> that is true. I do. I do forget about that. That both of those are very again register fine for people in the eighties. Maybe not so much now. Um, Mike, are you good with if I just kind of roll through these? I just yeah, have a few of them. Yeah, I'll jump in with my insights, my profound insights as we go. Again, kind of just stepping up in in maybe degree of of how much we care about it. Uh, there's this weird, really weird 80s anxiety about, like, the Japanese economy overrunning the American economy. I'm, like, there's so many socioeconomic things behind this that I don't really know how much we want to get into it. Uh, but suffice it to say, it was really prevalent in the 80s. And it's super weird and has vaguely racist overtones, especially in this movie. The line I didn't remember, oh. and that is, like, a little oh. tough... Huh. Is when Takagi says a little tough. <laughs> when Takagi says, "I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan." I think we're flexible. Pearl Harbor didn't work out, so we got you with tape decks. <laughs> so yeah, that's kind of a big yikes moment, right? That's yeah. Uh, and don't forget, that's just weird. Don't forget, just weird John, energy. That was preceded by I didn't realize they celebrated Christmas in Japan, which is just one yeah. of those things. You're like, yeah. Who wrote this script? It's just, it's just all <laughs> weird. But again, it's it. This comes up in a lot of '80s movies. Yeah. And I, I, I mean, frankly, we're just not old enough to know a hundred percent. Like we'd have to talk to someone. But from what I gather, this was just kind of the anxiety at the time. That it was like you know everyone was saying their market is their economy is doing so amazing. It became the second biggest economy in the world or third biggest, and it was like oh they're going to take over everything. Uh, that didn't end up being true. I don't know if you know that, Mike. What? Uh, so it's just weird in hindsight. It's just, and I mean, it's weird for other reasons, but 
yeah, it's just weird. Just weird. Any any thoughts? Any any takes on that? Uh, yeah, I mean, it is just strange. That's it. It's a throwaway yeah. line. It's weird. They actually don't necessarily deal with that anxiety in a, almost anywhere else in the film and go out of their way to humanize the, you know, the boss and the Japanese characters. And so it's it's strange. It's like it's like a throwaway for no apparent reason. Um, Man, uh, that does make me remember, though, going back to why this works in the great writing when Hans is looking for Takagi and as he's walking through the crowd, he's like listing his little like Wikipedia entry or whatever. But right when Takagi says, you know, stands up and is like, hey, I'm, you know, it's me. That's right at the moment that he's at the end of the, his speech and and Gruber says, and father of three children. Yeah. And it's like, so that's just, ooh, that just takes Straight you right over the menace. edge of like, mm, this is so good. Okay. Anyway, sorry. So back to what maybe holds this movie back. Um, Mike, I'll let you take this one a little bit. There's uh, some casual sexism in this movie, isn't there? Yeah. Lots of little moments. They're really, I mean, I said I'll let you take it. I do just want to call out, like, if nothing else, they're all just really comfortable talking about, like, Holly's position as a woman in the workplace as though she doesn't have any agency over herself. Yeah. Like, around her. Like, it's super weird. Is this just me, Mike? It was super weird, like, when Ellis, Takagi, and McLean... Ellis, man. Are all having, just again, this very casual conversation about, like, oh, you know, her being a woman working here with you as her husband. But, like, that's the topic of the conversation, and they're all just discussing it in a way that I'm like, I just don't think we do that nowadays. I just think that would read, it just read really weird. So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah there's they, obviously other things, but that, the, I just noticed that. There's a reading of this movie that, if it was intentional, could be a commentary on uh, the way that we allow. Uh, a woman's private life to be kind of forced upon her in the workplace. And uh, we don't allow her to just like take on the role of her self as an employee and all sorts of, and leader and all these things. This movie is not trying to have that conversation. Um, it's I was going to say, like, that's a lot. You're is, giving, you're giving them a lot of credit, uh, but I, I am mean, not, yeah, I am not. Uh, it's so, yeah, it is. It's just like, well, if you actually think this is like appropriate to be doing then this, it's yeah. Very eighties again, um, which very again 80s. is very strange in terms of the backdrop of the character, which is making a very empowered choice. And the movie in terms of its broad strokes is applauding her for that choice. Um, and it's weird that in the writing, it doesn't trickle down in terms of that. Yeah. So I think yeah. uh, the only other thing I have about her character is that they make a very obvious choice about halfway through this film to open up her blouse and to show some cleavage. And that's just yeah. weird. Just weird, man. Just like, I don't get it. I never get it. It's not like she goes through anything to have that happen in terms of like a physical altercation. It's just like, hey, when it gets time to the end for her to be a damsel in distress, we better make sure we have some uh, some boobs showing. And that is, it felt again, like a 80s, 80s, yeah. 80s. Felt like a slimy 80s producer note, right? Yeah. Like, hey, can we get, yeah, it's like, oh, no, we don't, we don't need that. Uh, no, I agree with that. Uh, last one I have, possibly the biggest, depending on your interpretation. Um, what are the, what are the most unintentionally, I want to say funny line readings just because it's so serious, but in today's context is so harrowing that it's like, why is this even in this movie? I'm talking when Reginald, uh, Verl Johnson, whose character name I forget, uh, Al. explains to John McClane, Al, thank you. Uh, I had an accident. Drive, I can see why. What'd you do? Run over your captain's foot with the car. I shot a kid. He was 
13 years old. Oh, it was dark. I couldn't see him. He had a ray gun look real enough. You know, when you're a rookie, they can teach you everything about being a cop except how to live with a mistake. So, yeah, this character... So, so you know, the, the, the situation is uh, we are kind of pitying this cop who accidentally shot a kid and therefore feels like he can't like he has to work desk because he's he's too upset to be able to use his gun all of which leads to the climactic character building moment of when he of can kill again him being able to shoot <laughs> with him being able to shoot carl and it is genuinely i think the weirdest moment is that like musically and stuff that is supposed to be like the most rousing moment of the movie. I know. Right? It's so that strange. is supposed to be the most like, mm, get in there. Like we're supposed to cheer or whatever. And yeah, that just reads incredibly uncomfortable today. Like at yeah. an age where the, the dominant conversation about police and police using their guns is how they have been proven to be incredibly, uh, I don't know, you know, incompetent at it. And like, you know, if you have an issue with that, feel free to reach out to me. I'm going to ignore you. But, it, you know, it's just tough. Like in the last in the last 15 years, like, yeah, the, the issue we've had is not cops who are afraid to use their guns and, you know, overrun with the anxiety about it. If anything, we're seeing a system that is backing up some truly atrocious behavior and letting people get away with horrible things like maybe shooting kids and not being held accountable for it. So, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I'm willing to go as political as you want to go, Mike. It may not be worth it. Suffice it to say, this is extremely strange, the storyline. Yeah. It is so, so unnatural to where we are culturally now. Yeah, I, I don't know. It's just so weird. Uh, what, what, what do you have on that? There may not be that much to say, really. but No, uh, I, it's funny it, it, in a weird way. So what I wrote, and I'm going to come back to that point. What I wrote was word for word. Not sure I love this movie trying to get me to empathize with a cop who killed a 13-year-old in 2022, nor the fact that the movie triumphantly concludes with him being able to kill again as a good thing. Yay! Um, yeah. So ditto to everything he said. I think what what startles me or upsets me or is unsettling about it is kind of what, what Tarantino talks about with violence, where it's like a movie engaging in movie violence isn't necessarily unsettling to me. I don't feel like it's promoting violence. A movie with a pathos or an ethos that is celebrating mm. something like this as like a good moment, that is yeah. a celebration of violence that makes me very uncomfortable um, for all the reasons you stated and more. Just like the idea that this is some sort of personal growth moment is a very uncomfortable statement on the nature of police violence. And I uh, don't love it. So that's the end of my politics on it is that's not great. And uh, it's deeply, and like you said, even more so in 2022, the year of our Lord with everything that's gone on. But I would just say more broadly in terms of its engagement of like civic violence. It's just, it's, it's just a yeah. very, very strange message. And strange is a kind word. I, I would almost go as far to say like appalling to some degree. It's also just strange. You bring up a great point um, that honestly I hadn't considered, but it is. It's just worth noting too. It's it's a very different context. John McClane in a building, in, in like the most improbable situation you can imagine, in a building, you know, attacking all of these terrorists and stuff, versus a uniformed cop in a crowd shooting someone. Like I'm not saying that that's not a heroic moment, or like we don't have to get into that, 
but that's just a very different con- it's almost like too real of a context again yeah. possibly just today possibly just these days but you know it's like it's just a different situation a different environment and and yeah we don't we just don't really treat that as casually i think today no and, um, and i think so yeah, the worst part weird. is it's not necessary to the mill at all so yeah i don't know totally agree uh i actually do have one other thing but it occurs to me i i made the classic mistake where we we, we put all the all the stuff of more gravity towards the front so this will be a little bit of an anti-climax oh, yeah. i just want to note uh, building vents don't work like that. And this is like, this created just like 30 odd years of everyone just assuming, well, if things go down, I'm just going to jump into a vent and I'll be fine. And I just want to know, I just want to, you know, in, in an effort to spread some positive edu- education out there, I just want you guys to know that doesn't work. To start with, vents are usually much, much smaller than that. They're crazy loud. That was the biggest thing Mythbusters found is it was like, you can't just walk around it because even if you could fit in and uh, they're just not made to be moved around and they have things that would prevent you from moving through them because sure. they're not just open spaces you can crawl into. So great action movie setup, uh, poor reality mirroring. That's a weird phrase, but you know what I mean? Yeah, um, sure. Anything else, Mike, for what holds this movie back? You know, I don't, we are often critical on the length of movies because we're, you know, millennials, I guess. I don't know. It's not a YouTube video. Um, but at I this do point, think... we may just be boomers, Mike. I just got to be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't <laughs> know. Boomers just... like will watch Das Boot and be like, ah, I could have watched another eight hours. Um, See, my take was like boomers are like, like, oh, I'm too old to like sit here watching something. But I guess you're right. Yeah. So we're boomers, zoomers. We did boomers it. made Lord of the Rings. So they can't be too upset about length. So. Um, Man, hard to disagree. Hard to disagree. Um, yeah. So I didn't remember this movie being two hours and 12 minutes. And it never feels oppressively overlong. But I do no. think there are probably about 15 minutes to get this under two hours that you could shave off. Um and some of that, I think, is just 80s action. I think there's just, like, some sequences of this movie that they would have moved through quicker if it was modern. Yeah. And I also kind of want to just, like, throw out that this is maybe to a degree just bias because this movie doesn't feel slow. It never feels dull. It never feels like it grinds to a halt. Um, so it might just be, like, I've grown up with John Wicks and Fury Roads, and, and I just expect quicker movement between set pieces. And this sure. movie isn't actually flawed. It's just older. And that might be the case. But... Just yeah. wanted to shout that out. Would have loved to see this movie under two hours. And that's not a big deal, ultimately, at the end of the day. It's funny because I, I don't necessarily disagree. Uh, if I think about, like, movies that came later that were maybe a little bit trimmer, I'm, I'm inclined to say that the thing that those filmmakers would have cut from this movie would have been actually mostly the setup, like, the, the beginning, which actually... I really wouldn't want to be cut. So I have sure. sort of conflicting emotions about it because yeah. I'm with yeah. you. Like I would cut some of the action, like, like some of the, it's the action's all really good, but it's like, yeah, you know, maybe, maybe 10 minutes of him fighting he- German henchman. Number seven didn't necessarily <laughs> need to, to be a, a significant part of the movie. Um, but again, if I think about other kind of leaner action movies, mostly they skip on like, you know, that setup that I sure. really want. Like, I like all of that stuff at the beginning. Yeah, yeah. So I don't disagree, but I also am, am nervous about the idea of someone like, like you know, trying to cut this, which obviously won't happen. This exists as a pre-existing thing. You know, probably they're going to try to remake this in our lifetimes and it's going to be terrible and, and whatever. So can't wait. Uh, so we'll just ignore that anyways. 
Uh, man, we didn't even talk about the sequels at all with our history of the movie. What is your history with the sequels, Mike? Oh, I haven't. Fine. I'll start here. I've only seen one of them. I only saw Live Free or Die Hard. That was pretty okay. Yeah. That, that I, was, I, I think I probably said that at the time. I, I've seen all of them, maybe. I don't know. Um, I definitely seen I hear two. people are really Def- in on the third one, I think. I'm not really in on any of them all okay. that much but they're all fake they're all, fake fan fake fan good, well, no, no. Good they're all fine they're all fine i mm-hmm. like i know the one with samuel jackson people adore and i'm just like it's, it's that's fine. the third one yeah it's fine i don't yeah. know why i know that i haven't seen it but it's fine uh yeah cool good 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 hot takes for mike great podcasting <laughs> you love to see it uh cool let's move on we have stray thoughts mike and i have each prepared it's eight now right eight eight thoughts cool and we'll just trade back and forth. Um, this one is a stray thought that was originally in what doesn't work, but as you'll you'll understand once I read it, why I moved it to stray thought because it became a question. Uh, this is a quote from a actually the TV tropes article about this movie, right? So this is this is essentially an unsighted source, which may answer the question. Much of the scene, the quote is, much of the scene where Hans tries to use a fake American accent to pass himself off as a hostage to McLean was apparently ad-libbed after the producers discovered that Rickman could do a good American impersonation. My question to you, Mike, is Rickman's American accent supposed (laughs) to be good? Because I took it for granted. It was pretty shocking, but that was kind of the point that like, you know, it was like almost believable that he was just a weird American but like that's what started McLean thinking something's a tiny bit off about this guy. Uh, but it's possible I'm just wrong and everyone else is like, yeah, it's a great, that's an American. And I'm just, I'm just over, I'm the, I'm asking you, Mike, am I the weird one here? Cause apparently the internet says this is a great impersonation. Yeah. I, I uh, had the exact same response that you did. I thought okay. it was meant to be hokey. And it's like, everything i read is like what an oscar worthy performance and you're like oh again oh. i love the performance oh, but just yeah. that that specific yeah i'm like well it, what it, was it though interesting okay. interesting what if he had just done Did, the uh jason statham from uh snatch american like, it, I, it would have been incredible i mean what if jason statham had just been hans gruber in this movie <laughs> I think he's made that movie already. Now um, we're cooking. Now yeah, we're cooking. I think that's Fast 12. Um, anyway. <laughs> so I'm just going to get this out of the way. And this is actually interesting. This might be the end of the bit. I might have misplayed my hand. But I'm going to go for it. Worst hey. I feel like I know where this is going. Worst yeah, hey. Yeah. Argyle uh-huh. or Lewin Davis. Yep. And let yep. me set it yep. up. I'd... Let me set okay. it up. I want okay, to talk yeah, about Argyle specifically in the context of him being an anonymous driver who picks you up for a long drive from the airport after you have taken a cross-country flight. Because for me, Argyle is legit my nightmare as an Uber driver. Yeah. Like, if someone asked me that many direct personal questions about my impending divorce, I would demand sorry, that they pull over the car. So, Was answer it, the question, Sorry, man, Josh. I used to drive a cab, and they and people like to like the little chit-chat. It's like, do no, they, though? No, we you don't. You have people <laughs> and your cab. I, I, this is so severe that I actually chalked it up to, like, maybe things were different in the 80s. Like, maybe in the 80s, it was just chiller. To talk. I mean, to be fair, they didn't have phones, so it's like, what were they doing? But, man, I, I had the same. I actually 
feel really happy because I removed that from my stray thoughts word for word, exactly the same question you had. Yeah. I assumed you would have it. Um, because I had the same thought as soon as, as he's up talking with Argyle, I'm just like, wow, this guy's the worst. I hate this. I would never want to do this. So yeah, I mean, the answer is obviously, Oh, that's why it's breaking the question. That's what you're saying. This is the end of the bit because we have to say Llewellyn, right? Yeah. No, 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 no. That's, is this that the end? Right. Are we picking no, here's, Argyle? Here, here's the thing, Mike. Here's the thing. Here's the thing about Argyle, okay? He talks to he talks to Bruce Willis about his divorce. And it's like, wow, this is like really a lot. But first of all, McLean chose to sit in the front seat, okay? okay. So he's sending signals of, I'm not like, you know, maybe we could talk. I'm not going to sit in the back and do my thing. And second of all, once they get to the building, he's willing to go and just wait and decide if he's going to, you know, and, and go with McLean if he's going to, you know, give him to a house if he needs to do that. Or obviously, uh, you know, let him go off with his wife. So uh, I, I'm he's a wingman is what I'm trying to say. He's a good wingman. He's good energy. He's good locker room energy. Maybe not like the best vibes, but there is no way Llewellyn Davis is helping you that much with anything oh, yeah, your yeah, entire life. Yeah. Right. He does not have your back in any way. Lewin Davis so would sleep with I'm, your wife. In fact, just... yeah, yeah. I'm gonna give the slight edge to Argyle. It was tough. That one got close. But but for me, I think I'd rather like like they're both bad. But I, I'm gonna take Argyle. Yeah, I think I'm okay with that. I'm happy. This with is that. a this is this is somehow worse for Llewellyn than when we picked Baron or Conan over him. This is somehow it is more I, I egregious. Mean... <laughs> It's tough, but uh, I'm standing by it. I'm standing okay. by it. The bit lives. The bit lives. <laughs> the bit. I was worried. I, I I almost deleted I it because I did not want the bit to die, and I was like, God, no. I don't know. But okay, it'll be cool. here. It'll be here until the end of this show. That'll be the last thing we say on the show. Um, <laughs> I just want to point out, cool hacker guy is typing on the keyboard one key at a time with his pointer finger. Yeah. So like, yeah, yeah. That's just that's just uh, it's just a little tough. Again probably flies a little better in the eighties where it's like computers are mystical anyways. Uh, but yeah, I don't have a lot of, I don't have the most confidence in that guy. I'm just going to say it. Yeah. I'm going to, I'm going to tag on with that one with boomer energy. When yeah. It comes to technology. Uh, John McClane struggling to use a very simple, very intuitive computer directory is real boomer energy. Especially because I think, I think in the context of the eighties, like the touchscreen thing is supposed to be like a really like, Oh my God, this is so, and it's it's amazing how poorly that aged. Like, yeah, you could not if I if I went back in time and tried to make something that would age poorly in terms of technology, I couldn't do much better than that. Because yeah, it's just like what exactly is confusing about touching a screen to to to, to do yeah. exactly what you want? I do not understand. Um, this is one of my favorite. This might be a little long for a straight thought, but this is one of my favorite straight thought things I've ever had. So we're gonna try to get through it. Uh, a weird fact about this movie is that Die Hard, as the title, is an idiom. It's an English idiom, which means it doesn't actually translate that well to other languages because you would it would just become something like, like, I don't know, it just wouldn't quite work. Like, it would have to be literal and it wouldn't really make sense. Um, so for the international releases, the film tended to get translated and renamed in translation. So, Mike, I'm going to hit you with a few of my favorite other language names for this movie. Oh, if that's cannot okay. wait. Yes. Uh, in France and Italy, this was called Crystal Trap, which sounds like a sound, like a SoundCloud like like musician, right? I love that. 
Um, in German, which I can't imagine how this would play in Germany, by the way, because I didn't even think about that with all of the characters. But in German, it was die slowly, which is, I think, maybe a little on the nose, but that's a little bit German language, so I'm okay with it. Sure, yeah, yeah. Um, in Hungary, it's give your life expensive. Again, kind of just a literal translation. Uh, in Taiwan, it's the ultimate detective, which is oh, kind of weird. I feel like we... <laughs> I, I just feel like I have issues with that one. I'm just French like, take. Eh. Okay. Just don't know if that's totally accurate. Uh, in Russian, it's hard nut, as in to crack hard nut, <laughs> which is, uh, yeah, that's, that, that's the second to last one because that's almost my favorite, except that in Spain, this was glass jungle, which is unironically a great name. I would have watched this in English if it was titled glass jungle. I think that's amazing. Uh, so yeah, that's just a sampling. There was actually a list of like 30 of these. I just picked the eight that I, or the six that's or seven. Fantastic. That I, like I like hard nut. Yeah. That's, that's my favorite. Hard, hard, hard nuts, hard to, hard to beat. I, I, I can't disagree with you on that. All right. My turn. Yeah. Uh, here's a tough question. Does John McClane deserve to get his family back? Like, does any part of this experience translate to positive growth in his role as a husband or a father? And how long do you think their marriage makes it? And mind you, I don't remember the sequel, so they maybe are divorced. Let, the for the purpose of this conversation, the sequels yeah. don't exist. Uh, I, I mean, I just made like a very incredulous expression because I'm like, yeah, he's a great father. What are you talking about? He's a, I'm bought in, Mike. I like okay. John McClane's a great guy. He's a good person. This marriage has legs. It's going far. Uh, you know, he's probably a good father. He, he brought that stupid stuff bare. Uh, across the whole country that's not that's not a bad person wouldn't do something like that i think he's good i i think uh i think you need a little bit more warmth and christmas spirit in how you perceive uh perceive others maybe a little bit mike i'm a little bit i'm a little bit offended on behalf of of mr mclean so according to the wiki yeah they they get divorced they don't make it and john becomes What's estranged and becomes estranged I've... from his children by the fourth movie <laughs> I believe I said the words out loud for the purposes of this conversation. There are no sequels. Facts, and I reiterate hey, the facts don't don't stand with you, John. The facts don't stand with me. I'm too big for that. I'm too good for that. So yeah, I'm just gonna move on. Um frankly, California was far less exciting for me than it was for John McClain. He's just walking around like every single to, let's also note, though, a little bit of a prude, maybe John McClane. Yeah, like chill he sees out, John. a girl in what is a very not like crazy like like uh, outfit, and jumping on on a guy at the airport and giving him a kiss, and he's like, California, <sighs> and it's like, is that is that that weird? Is that any part? I don't know. Maybe this is twenty twenty two sensibilities again. But I was like, that looks like a normal young couple, right? Guy that's a little bit wasted at a Christmas party gives him a hug, a kiss on the cheek, and John McClane can't stand up to it. Maybe this movie's about toxic masculinity. That's all I'm trying to say. I'm just asking questions, you know? Just asking um, questions. Just asking questions. So, yeah, I don't know. I, I think he needed to chill about California, but I also think that my California experience was just more boring in, in comparison. I'm just going to be real. Yeah, this is actually my next one. I just said, I thought of John. Yeah. I thought of you, John, when a drunk guy <laughs> kissed McClane on the cheek, and he was like, why is California so defined by liberal debauchery? Um, that is that is the kind of thing I say, yeah. Yeah, so I was just like, oh, that's a weird take, John McClane, but that reminds me of old Johnny D, so maybe, maybe, I don't yeah. know, maybe it is. Maybe. Yeah, that's, I'm that's just asking questions. 
So, yeah, that's what it might do. Um, Apparently, Bruce Willis did almost all of his own stunts, which is mm. amazing. Uh, he also apparently lost some hearing because the gun that he fires beneath the table, uh, the conference table into the guy, which is a great action movie moment, was accidentally loaded with extra loud blanks. It was blanks, but they were like really loud blanks. Uh, and had, I, I believe, if I read it right, semi-permanent uh, hearing problems from that. No, uh, so that's a bummer. bummer but yeah, uh, kind of happens more than people realize. Happened to, uh, God, what's her name? Um, Sarah Co- Sarah Cotter is the character in Terminator 2. Uh, <laughs> what's her name? I'm losing my mind. Uh, um, you can't remember Hamilton. it either. It's Linda, Linda Hamilton. Hamilton. Thank you. Yeah. Come on, happened man. to Linda Hamilton in Terminator 2 for the same reason. Um, she, or actually, I think that one was her fault. She didn't put in her hearing protection for a scene with really loud blanks and had some hearing damage. So, you gotta be careful around even fake guns, as it turns out. Uh, loud blanks can be very damaging to hearing. Who knows? Well, there you go. The more there you know, with John Devine. Uh, yeah, I'll build off of that. The terrorist standing on the table and yelling, Next time you kill someone, don't hesitate. Uh, before getting killed because he's reloading his gun is the only mm. death of this movie that strains my belief. It's just like, <laughs> it's like the only. Is it beautiful... because of the one liner setup or is it oh, because yeah. of the. It's like, okay. And he okay, talks yeah. for like 15 seconds about what's about to happen to him. And you're like, there's something that's like wonderfully 80s. Like, and, and it's mocking that to some degree too, I think. There's something yeah, wonderful but about it, it, it but it's also, also just like, come on guys. Like this movie's so grounded and the scene is so ridiculous. <laughs> yeah totally agree that 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 one always stuck out to me a little bit but i love uh i just love the physical setup of it so i'm still in on the scene yeah 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 great action sequence for sure uh this one kind of blew my mind i had to go back and rewatch something to check on this uh apparently much of the script was improvised due to the constant screenplay tweaks during filming uh in the commentary track John McTiernan points out that there's no ambulance in the back of the terrorist tractor trailer at the beginning of the movie when they arrive because they Mm. hadn't thought of it yet. Just straight up. Because at the end of the movie, it pulls out of it because that's how they're going to get out of the building. But when they shot the scene uh, for the arrival, they hadn't thought of that. So if you watch the movie, it's just not there. So the ambulance at the end just is totally out of nowhere. I think that's actually an incredible example of what we talk about uh, when we talk about plot holes, because yeah. it's like, again, no one ever in all of history has noticed that in that movie. Yeah. Uh, they, the director points it out. So that's how I know it. Um, but otherwise you will never notice that incredibly huge logical fallacy in the movie where it's just like, yeah, that makes no sense. Uh, but yeah, one of those weird things. Yeah. Uh, here's a good one. Is there a more damning yep. critique of America's police than the sequence that flips from the cops ignoring his cry for help on the roof to <laughs> Powell buying a ton of pastries at a gas station? Again, I don't want to answer that because we're we're getting into that like Reagan era like political thing of like yeah, you can't yeah, trust yeah. the government, you can't trust the blah, blah blah. So it's like yeah, in this movie, I'm I'm totally inclined to agree that it's a tough it's a tough beat for. Um, authority figures and officers and and pretty much anyone in charge of anything to be honest they're all all almost mind-numbingly incompetent is how i would maybe phrase it um yeah it's tough it's tough it's tough uh the original script called for terrorists to hijack the building and for a superhero cop to stop them 
McTiernan modified the script to change the bad guys into robbers pretending to be terrorists so that the audience would enjoy their intention of just getting money. Like, he, he knew that would kind of be more fun. He felt having terrorists as the villains would make the movie less enjoyable and give it a political angle that he wanted to avoid. Mm. Here's what I think is so interesting about that, Mike. The novel is kind of the opposite. Mm. It ends up, I'm just going to quote directly here. Uh, the novel ends up very political. As it turns out, the quote-unquote terrorists are actually just after all the money that was stolen from the Chilean people during Henry Kissinger's negotiations with Pinochet. And Leyland, who's the who's McLean in the, in the book, ends up bitterly realizing he was the villain all along, making things much bloodier than they needed to be. Can you imagine anything less fun oh than the God. sentence I just read to you? That what? is the original novel of this movie. Is that insane? I read that sentence and I was just like, what? It goes from zero to a hundred. As soon as I read Henry Kissinger, I was just like, okay, this is, this got real wild, real fast. Holy cow. What? Yeah. Isn't that insane? I almost want to read, I'm not going to, but I almost want to read the novel just to know like, what exactly do all those words mean? Um, (laughs) Yeah. That's bonkers. That's bonkers. Uh, I can't decide if this is a statement on violence in L.A. or if this is a plot hole. But are we to believe that no one in downtown L.A. heard the machine gun fire on the roof of the tower? Like, (laughs) guns are really loud. I don't know if you know this. And there are a lot of bullets that are shot in the first scene when he's on the roof and the cops haven't been notified yet. Yeah. Just strange. Uh, Maybe that was just L.A. in the 80s. Yeah. You know, like, like if movies are anything to go on, it was kind of a... It was kind of a war zone, and so like I don't know, maybe maybe that's just what was going on. Yeah, yeah maybe know. you're right. Maybe you're right. Movies are where I get all my Ro- knowledge. Robocop so. is about to show off. Yeah. Uh This is my last one. I put on here hashtag just asking questions. Compared to that company party, Hans's team is surprisingly diverse. Yeah. Who's the real villain here, Mike? That's you know who's the real villain here? Because really, something. it's a sea of it's Takagi and a sea of white people in their like thirties and forties. Uh, and then Hans, we you know we have we have his hacker, we have the American guy who I think is the American guy up front. We have all these German guys. We have you know all these European people. There's just a lot going on. It's just a lot of a wide range of experiences are represented, and so yeah. Again, I'm just asking questions. Yeah, I mean beyond that, I'm constantly skeptical of the evil nature of corporations anyway why does a corporation have a vault with millions and millions of dollars of untraceable bonds just like securely hidden at the bottom of their building um that's strange that is is actually often brought up as hey like what exactly was the the nakatomi corporation up to right yeah so maybe these are the good guys you know maybe they were stolen from chileans as i'm trying to say and and they deserve there we go so during anyway. Henry Kissinger's negotiations with Pinochet, whoever. Well, of course, as as yeah. everyone yeah, knows, yeah, yeah. As, as you do, as everyone knows, as everyone knows, <laughs> so, that's just common knowledge. We don't have yeah. to talk about that, but yeah, that's just American history. Anyway, um, you know, this is a plot hole that I noticed in the movie, and I'm not big on authority. I'm not big on rules, John, but like John McClane and his wife cannot just leave the scene of that crime like they do. Yeah, that is... like that is not allowed. That is. There's also, not for nothing, but punching even a slimy reporter is still an assault. So, like, yeah. you know, I, I just don't think we're all just laughing that one off and walking away. I feel like that's a little bit of a situation you just created. 
Um, but not to mention, you're right. Also, like, I, I don't think they're just like, yeah, you go. Because he, I mean, to be clear, they don't talk to anyone. They're yeah, not they debriefed at all. Yeah. Al's just he like, barely ah, has get a conversation with Al. Yeah. You kids. He says all of six words to him. <laughs> it's uh, like, one, it's one. John McClane has murdered multiple people at this point. Even if in self-defense, we have to answer. We have to answer some questions about. Also, that. cops don't have jurisdiction not in their cities, but whatever. Let you know. Yeah, again, we're there's just a lot blazing past <laughs> that. Yeah, <laughs> lots of lots of moments. Lots of moments. Uh, anything else? I feel like that's it. That's it for me. All right, we'll stick around after the break. We're gonna come back with uh, some essays Mike and I each prepared. Welcome to the next part of the podcast. Uh, here, Mike and I have each prepared an essay that dives deeper into some aspect of the movie that we wanted to talk about, uh, I guess, just more in depth. Uh, Mike, I think I'm going to go first, if that's okay. Sounds good. Here we go. As often as not, it takes a great villain to make a great popcorn movie. Could you even imagine Star Wars without Darth Vader, Jaws without the shark, or the Wizard of Oz without the Wicked Witch of the West, a great antagonist almost seems to notch a movie up to one higher gear, giving the story momentum and inertia, propelling you forward just to see what will happen next. But even amongst the most iconic villains of all time, Alan Rickman's Hans Gruber rises to the top for me. Gruber is a magnificent force in this movie. Obviously, he sets the entire plot into motion by instigating the heist, but the style that he brings to his operation lifts the entire movie. And I'm struck every time I rewatch Die Hard, not only by how engrossing Rickman himself is to watch, but by how uniquely positioned the character is, especially compared to other action and action adventure movies. As much as I'd like to tell you that Hollywood scriptwriters have figured out how to write great villains, the reality is this is still something that goes wrong constantly in these kinds of movies. In fact, I'd argue that a compelling villain is one of the least prioritized elements of a typical popcorn movie over the last few decades. This is particularly true with the Marvel machine, where, occasional exceptions like Thanos and Killmonger notwithstanding, villains are almost always totally forgettable, just lazily fulfilling their role as punching fodder for the hero before being summarily dismissed in time for the next movie's big bad. With this in mind... I try to set out exactly what makes Gruber such a great villain, how Die Hard as a movie is structured to make the character as fun and exciting as possible. These ingredients still make a great villain for like any kind of movie. Gruber is not an operatic tragic figure. He's not an ideology. In other words, he's not Michael Corleone or Joker or things like that. But for this specific kind of popcorn action movie, I don't think you can go wrong if you follow these three basic rules. First, keep the motivation simple. I find that a lot of subpar antagonists are laden with murky motivations, leaving the viewers confused and bored when they're forced to interact with the character. Now, nuance is obviously a great thing for complex, rich characterization, but in this kind of movie, it's just not always a particularly effective way to write a villain. 
This is especially true when a movie has to do the work of introducing us to both the hero and the villain. An origin story in today's language has to spend so much time selling the audience on the hero and their journey that it can never really flesh out a complex villain in a satisfying way. So they rely on shorthand personal motivations, generally revenge or fighting for my people or something like that. Basically, just some arbitrary reason for the audience to accept why this person would go to such great lengths to battle our protagonist. Hans Gruber, on the other hand, sidesteps the entire issue by having very straightforward motivations. We don't need to spend a lot of time with him to understand the intricacies of the character because there's not a lot to understand. He wants money. Everything else is window dressing. The core of the character is that he is going to rob this building and happily plow through anyone and everything that gets in his way. By keeping Gruber's motivation simple, the filmmakers let our attention center on his other characteristics, such as 2. Have your antagonist convey a sense of total control over the situation. I said earlier that writers often try to raise the story stakes by injecting intense emotions into the villain's motivations, usually by making things personal or political to some degree. In effect, though, this is lazy writing, because it's making a situation tense conceptually, but not literally. As in, we have to bring outside perspective and emotions to the movie in order to feel the gravity of the situation. When a bad guy tells the hero, you, your people killed my entire family or something like that, we, the audience, are effectively being told how to feel. The screenwriter is saying, hey, this is a serious bad guy and he's going to pose a lot of trouble for the hero and it's really personal and really intense. Again, we're being told that. Compare that with Die Hard, where the stakes are set from the outset, not by Gruber's motivation as a character, but by his actions and their consequences. From the second he strolls into the Christmas party, Gruber poses a formidable, real threat to the protagonists of the film. Armed with a brilliant plan, a host of violent henchmen, and a total understanding of how to deal with threats and new situations, Gruber poses a serious challenge to McLean, which makes it even more exciting seeing how McLean can get out of it. This is actually doubly effective because Gruber's seeming total control over the situation also raises the intensity of their relationship when McLean starts to foil his plans. This provides McLean's place in the narrative with a lot more weight. He's not just running around doing arbitrary good guy things. He's tangibly pushing back on this particular character, coming into conflict with his motivations and his sense of control and making the movie more fun as a result. And that core relationship between protagonist and antagonist is key to my third and final ingredient for a great popcorn movie villain. They don't blunder easy moves to the protagonist. To illustrate this point, I want to call up one of my absolute favorite scenes from the movie, when Gruber and McLean first meet face to face. Hi there. How you doing? Oh! Please, God, no! You're one of them, aren't you? You're one of them. No, no! Don't kill me, please! No, please! Don't kill me, don't kill me, please! Whoa, 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 relax. Relax, I'm not gonna hurt you. 
I'm not gonna hurt you. The fuck are you doing up here? What were you looking for? I managed to get out of there and uh, well, I was just trying to get up on the roof and see if I could signal for help. You know, it's just from here. Why, do, why don't you come in and help? Oh, 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 oh. Uh, we forget the roof. Come on, come on. I said forget the roof. They got people all over. Well, you want to stay alive, you stay with me. This is an amazing scene, partially just for the uniqueness and cleverness of the setup. Gruber, unarmed, comes face to face with John McClane holding a machine gun. But while Gruber knows who John McClane is, McClane has no idea what Hans looks like. Notice that this is a very specific situation, relying on key details of the plot and the character's knowledge. Hans's response to meeting McLean is to fake an American accent with maybe mixed results and play as though he is simply another escaped hostage. This creates a mini Hitchcock movie as the two men interact while unknowingly hunting one another. It also creates a real challenge for our hero. Gruber's gambit is well conceived and executed and it's doubtful that an average person like you or me would have the caution or foresight to see through it. This tension takes us to the brink when McLean hands Gruber a pistol and we the audience think that he's lost this mind game, only to learn along with Hans that McLean knew all along not to trust the stranger and gave him an empty weapon. That is an incredibly satisfying conclusion to this little episode. And most importantly, it demonstrates that third ingredient of a great villain. Creating and playing out those kinds of situations takes a lot of work as a screenwriter because it relies on clever understanding of characterization and storytelling. Typical action movies aren't brave enough to write a scene like this because frankly, typical action movies aren't smart enough to know how to resolve that situation. They appeal to our hero's strength, quote unquote, physical and emotional or kind of spiritual to solve problems, not their intelligence or wisdom. The reason why this is rare should be obvious. It's pretty hard to write compelling smart villains because it requires smart writing. It would be easier to keep McLean in the sweet spot of a hero and have him just kind of beating bad guys up. But by making his antagonist so competent, by making sure that Gruber never missteps, the writers get to keep challenging McLean over and over again raising the stakes and the odds against him until we are absolutely cheering for him to keep finding ways to barely pull through. None of that is possible if we don't accept the competence, ability, and intelligence of the antagonist, Hans Gruber. To be clear, there's many, many, many other things that go into making a great villain or even into making Hans Gruber himself a great villain. These three ingredients aren't the end-all be-all of writing antagonists, but they are the things I most often see go wrong with these kinds of action movies. So next time you pick up a ticket and just want to relax with mindless action, spare a thought and notice how the villain is portrayed. And if you do watch a movie that has a great villain, maybe take a moment to appreciate the work that the filmmakers and actors put into making that a compelling bad guy, especially when they probably didn't have to.
Yeah. I'm actually so happy I got to do that in the essay because I would have tried to just do an essay in the what works section of the movie. Because yeah. I can't say enough good things about this character. And we talked, obviously, about Rickman. Um, but as, as hopefully I, I demonstrated a little bit, the character is doing so many exciting things in the plot, right? He's... And so many things that I just don't see other good villains do. Like, other good villains aren't um, threatening in this way, right? Yeah. Um, I don't know. I, I'm kind of saying the essay again, but well, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that, Mike? Yeah, yeah. I think um, I really liked, I mean, a number of things he said. I like the simple motivation thing. I do also like it as, like, a hack for the point you made about, like, not kind of uh, weighing down origin stories, trying to do both the hero and the villain. That's kind mm-hmm. of a, a, a cheat code in a way to give it such a clear and simplistic. I mean, I don't want to say simplistic. It sounds degrading, but in a positive way, uh, yeah. motivations of, I just want money. It's just smart. Simple doesn't mean dumb as well. Yeah. It's not dumb, but it is simple. Yeah. And then, and then there's the element of what you're talking about. where focusing on his intelligence. You're right. Cause you're going to have to, you're going to have to spend a lot more time, explaining how John McClane gets out of these situations. Um, which again, the other direction, a cheat code would be to make your villain stupid. But then it raises a whole host of questions beyond just the exciting nature of it. It raises a whole bunch of questions mm-hmm. of like, well, why are these people following this person? Because there's a, yeah. there's a great move in this movie in making him so highly competent. Sure, it makes the writing of their back and forth and the chess match they're playing harder and more exciting. But it also makes it very clear to you why these people are following him. They think he's going to be able to get the money. They think he's going to be able to yeah. pull this insane thing off. And to be he honest, is the kind he would of character have if not for, yeah yeah, yeah. 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 Well, because he is the kind of character who is in control and does not blunder. And in fact, yeah. it's also, what makes it thrilling. Like you say, as he gets one up and you start watching him get frazzled of like John McClane is the first person who's been able to kind of upend uh, this internal narrative for how things are going to go. And that makes those things very exciting. But it also just makes yeah. generally the plot a little more believable. So not a lot more believable. So, yeah, I love that. I really like that. I think that's a strong diagnosis. I, I, I don't necessarily want to badmouth other movies too directly. I will confess that I did have uh, one movie in mind. And I've actually badmouthed this villain a couple times. So at, at this point, I, I'm just... I'm just a bad person. I'm I'm just ragging on this one movie unfairly, especially because a lot of people like this movie, and I even I even have some affection for it. Uh, but the first Guardians of the Galaxy is so mm. so the opposite of every single thing I just said. It has a very. Do you remember anything about the villain of that movie? He was uh, played by blue. Lee Pace, who is one of my favorite actors of all time. So that's also maybe why I remember it so much because I'm so annoyed at it. Uh, but yeah, he's blue. You're right. He has an axe, I think. Does he have an axe? I, I actually don't, don't I don't totally know. remember. I'm out. Yeah, that's so this is the problem, right? Is that yeah, you know, and again, he's it's the cliche, oh, they did something to my people or blah blah blah. And it's the it's all these things that are like designed to make it again a very lazy way of making this like a villain that poses a threat to your characters. You're being told over and over again, this person poses a threat to these people. But again, like you see Die Hard, you're never told that Hans is a threat. You see that he's a threat. Yeah. You intuit that he's a threat because he is a threat. He does threatening things and he follows through on them, right? Yeah. Um, so in the sense, I guess I'm also just talking about good script writing in general. 
But it's just so funny to me because, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy, everyone loves the movie, made a lot of money. I think part of the thing is that, like, people do seem to forgive a lackluster villain if every other part of a movie is charming enough. So I guess that's the other thing I'm interested in is, like, it's so... It almost seems like extra credit making a really good villain. Well, right? it's what Which, it's what takes it to the next level for sure. It's not yeah. what makes it a enjoyable movie, but it is what makes it a a long lasting movie almost always. I mean, I think Black Panther is the definition of what you're talking about. When you think about like the whole host of Marvel origin stories, how forgettable mm. is the first Doctor Strange in comparison to Black Panther? And yeah. and, and Doctor Strange is one of those movies that's almost learned the wrong lesson from Die Hard, which is like, oh, we'll go get an overqualified actor to play this villain role, and that'll elevate the movie. And you're like, well, no. Like, I don't get me wrong. I love said overqualified actor, but if he's working with a character whose motivations are muddled, unclear, are simply just through exposition told to be sinister, it's just not interesting. And ultimately, that movie falls within the tidal wave of origin stories. But I'll always remember Black Panther. Because Black Panther has a captivating villain who is t- engaging in an interesting concept in a, in a again, I'm going to say simplistic. I mean that in terms of how well easily and seamlessly they convey these big ideas mm. in such a simplistic yeah. way. You're like, this is a well-thought-out villain. It is clear what his motivations are, and it is a fascinating thing that is taking place. And I will remember that movie above almost every other Ar- Marvel origin story because of that. So, again, I think Doctor Strange is a good movie. What makes Black Panther a great movie, though, is that choice to invest in the in the villain. Oscar Wilde wrote, Imitation is the sincerest form of flattery, which has honestly become one of the great cliches of our time. But honestly, that's because it hits on a truth, as most great cliches do. When one uses their effort to imitate or recreate something they've witnessed, a behavior, posture, attitude, art piece, or story, that act in and of itself shows how deeply they were impacted by the original they seek to copy. It's an act of flattery because it shows that this thing was so meaningful to them that they are willing to invest their limited time, talents or treasures into the effort of reproducing it for others and in a way as we've already mentioned in this podcast die hard is probably the most perfect example of this in modern cinema simply put die hard should be flattered because of how profoundly and prolifically it has been imitated in the action genre if imitation is a metric of influence it remains one of the most influential movies of the last 40 years, which by no means am I the first one to point out. It's a running conversation in the film industry, as we've said, in boardrooms. Just think about how many movies could be summarized and pitched pretty much solely as, well, it's like Die Hard, but blank. And spoiler, there's literally hundreds of movies post-Die Hard that fit this bill. Passenger 57, Air Force One, even Con Air are essentially, well, it's like Die Hard, but on a plane. Speed, well, it's like Die Hard on a bus. Speed 2, Under Siege, well, it's like Die Hard on a boat. Even recent movies like Olympus Has Fallen, well, it's like Die Hard, but in the White House. Or Skyscraper, just Die Hard in a skyscraper. Each of these is effectively just Die Hard, but with a different 
setting. I mean, what I'm trying to get at is that Die Hard has become truly an archetypal story in the modern action genre. It's its own hero's journey of sorts, with its framework that's been recreated as much as any movie of the last five decades. Which is crazy, y'all. We expect that kind of proliferation from classics like Star Wars and Jaws or The Godfather, but I doubt that many of us would naturally consider Die Hard to be in that same tier of impactful movies on a culture when it comes to the craft of cinema. And yet, again, if imitation reflects the impact of a work, then it clearly deserves to be in the same conversations as those masterpieces. So, for me, the question is why? What is it about Die Hard that has elevated it to this insane level of impact? Well, when I think about it, I think it comes down to the fundamental components that are necessary to launch a new archetypal movie. And to wildly oversimplify this, I think that those components can be kind of boiled down into three key things at minimum. First, there has to be a need for it in the surrounding culture. A new kind of story comes about because there's an appetite for something new, whether people actively perceive it in the moment or not. Second, the new story has to be effective and repeatable, which isn't to say that all new great stories have to be these things, but for one to be highly imitated, this idea of being something that's repeatable is clearly almost part of the definition. And then third, the story has to have a foundational element that speaks to our humanity, as this creates the strong response to it in the first place that ultimately makes people want to imitate it at all, that makes them want to retell this story. And by that, again, overly simplistic framework, I think it's actually pretty easy to understand why Die Hard became this archetypal action movie and had such a profound, outsized impact on our movie-making culture. Because when you get down to it, it checks off every single one of those boxes. In terms of need, as we've already discussed, we have to remember how bloated and quite frankly dumb action movies have become by the end of the 80s. We had reached a fever pitch of action films either being an end-of-the-world Bond-type movie or some version of essentially bodybuilder or karate instructor who's a bad actor stars in a cheap film as ex-invincible super soldier who beats up simplistic bad guys with goals that are huge, i.e. world domination, and yet never actually feel dangerous, threatening, or create any sense of stakes. End of line. I mean, just go watch the run of Van Damme, Stallone, Schwarzenegger, movies from the late 80s and in them you'll find some gems but honestly as you get closer to die hard what you'll find more often than not is the same straight to dvd junk washed and repeated over and over and over again all to say by the time we get to die hard that formula had been beaten to death creating a clear desire for something radically different within the genre the perfect vacuum for something as innovative as die hard would be but Die Hard still needs to stick component two. To truly become an archetypal story, it still had to be effective and repeatable. And boy howdy, did Die Hard do just that. Again, just think about the bones of the movie. Using the opposite formula of those 80s movies, it created an alternative film that's wildly effective and endlessly repeatable when it comes down to its bare structure. 
Grab a mixing bowl and throw in high production values, technical craft, and clever writing. Throw in a hefty dose of a character who feels human and like they're anything but invincible, and then cast that character with a good actor who can do action, but not the other way around for the role. Mix him in with some turmoil created with a smart, complex, antagonistic villain cast with an equally good but different acting talent, and throw it all in a pan with a fight over small stakes that feels huge within the confines of the story, which you communicate through grounded but breathtaking action set pieces. Cook it for two hours, and what do you get? The most deliciously effective action film ever, with a formula that is endlessly repeatable if you just change out one or two of the flavor combinations or details in the recipe. At the core, the movie checks off that second box, perhaps better than any action movie ever made. But alas, we still need that human component for the real impact to take place. And in my mind, this is where Die Hard's innovation was truly brilliant. Simply put, in placing an average Joe at its center, it turned 80s action on its head by creating an action movie that we, as the audience could imagine ourselves within. Jean-Claude Van Damme, roundhouse kicking cyborgs, isn't very relatable to me. But being stuck in a labyrinth where I have to problem solve and overcome my own humanity to escape, that is. That's a story that we can identify with. One that despite its insanity, we can still watch and ask, how would I deal with forgetting my shoes? How would I get past glass on the floor? How would I save the day and outwit my opponent? In humanizing its action hero, Die Hard actually made it possible for us to imagine ourselves as action heroes. And that's a choice that tickles our human desire to be a hero and our imagination all at once. I mean, no wonder Die Hard has become the archetypal action story that it is. That is the formula for a movie that's wildly effective and endlessly repeatable to its core. And yet, to close, I want to make sure I also acknowledge just how singular Die Hard is, despite how often it's been recreated. You see, we forget that the rest of Oscar Wilde's quote is this, imitation is the sincerest form of flattery that mediocrity can pay to greatness. While imitation is flattering and acknowledges the impact of a work, it's also true that imitation rarely, if ever, lives up to the greatness of its original source material. More often, without adding something new to it, imitation only uses an archetypal story to produce a less interesting, less effective, and often mediocre semblance of its source all while lacking the resonance and the impact that the original brought out of the author. And to give substance to that claim, just go watch Skyscraper, and you let me know if that imitation gets even close to Die Hard 30 plus years later. All to say, what I love about Die Hard is that I can celebrate its impact in the archetypal action movie that it is. But each time I return to it, I'm also reminded that it's still a one-of-one one in its own right, a unique work that leaves me with a deep desire, not for its next imitation, but for the next movie that impacts me and the culture to the same degree. A movie that creates its own next new archetype for me to fall in love with, 
to watch people hopelessly attempt to imitate for decades to come. So you know all of those uh, YouTube channels that like like honest trailers and CinemaSins and stuff like that. Yeah, which I think kind of all jumped the shark. Maybe two or three years ago, we collectively just decided we were done. Uh, I did appreciate when honest trailers did Die Hard and they got to the end and they do like a fake title as a joke. The yeah. fake title they picked was Die Hard in a Building, uh, which I just think is that's is delightful. Lovely. I just really enjoy that. <laughs> But no, I love that. I think that the it's so funny because this is actually one of the things I feel like you and I end up talking about the most um, just between us. But, you know, I think the first thing that came to my mind is that this kind of situation or, or this kind of describes why people like you and me care about context so much when talking about kind of cultural things, cultural mm. artifacts. Uh because it's it's so easy for things to get swept up into the movement that they were a part of, especially if they started that, mm. in such a way that it can be detrimental to people trying to go back and experience that for the first time, right? Yeah. Um, I think like there's this weird effect that happens because you know Die Hard at this point, if if you think of like a true Zoomer, right, someone who's super young and has never seen any of these and doesn't have any of this context, I'm not saying they wouldn't like the movie, but I'm saying if they were to see it for the first time blind without knowing anything, I kind of wonder if they wouldn't almost feel like, you know, what is this? Like, this is so not what the current genre of action movies is that it'd be easy to internally lump it into all of the things that kind of came after it. And it would almost be like, well, no, you're missing such a huge part of the story if you don't realize what it's a reaction against. Like what this did that was at the time revolutionary that after that became, was, that it was so revolutionary that after that it became kind of blasé almost or it became mm, possibly yeah. like, oh, well, that's just what action movies do. I like to hope that the power of the movie shines through either way. But all of that to say, I think that's why I that's why people like you and me care so much about context, right? It is exactly yeah, this yeah. conversation of what you're talking about, of like, you know, how do these things that inspire so many things then get perceived down the line once all of that context is missing? Um, I'm fascinated by that. Having said that, I, I, I you know I totally think you're right, and it's it's so cool seeing how this became so influential and like you said why it became so influential um so yeah i don't know if you have any any thoughts on that specifically or um or yeah anything to go on from there no uh, yeah and obviously we'd have to pull the zoomers to figure that out yeah i i was impressed personally rewatching it how well it holds up in terms of pace sure. and in terms of um effects and stuff like that you know i i, I always think back to you know, we've talked about this before. Seinfeld isn't funny kind of bit. And it's because yeah. we've watched people who have perfected the craft and they've built on it and they've expanded it. And they it's just, it's building on the foundation, but they're doing it better as time moves forward and advances are made, yada, yada, yada. It's actually kind of astounding that I can't think of any diehard of the blank movie that does it better. Like it may have more technology Speed's and more pretty CGI. close. I'm just going to say. Yeah, Speed Speed's is a really good, good movie. But that's of even of us of the same quality in terms of time and era. Yeah. It's just, yeah, yeah. it's just an astounding feat in a lot of ways. And again, I might be wrong. Maybe a Zimmer's like, Nope, this is boring too slow. Um, but it is an interesting 
success story for this kind of thing, where it still, for the most part, beats out any modern retelling of this story. And it, it hasn't aged in the way uh, that others have. And, and it's kind of amazing that it is such an archetype that still stands so head and shoulders above the attempts to improve it that have come after. So, again, that's all hypothetical. We would need to do a poll, straw poll. Um, but <laughs> but it, it does speak to how I perceive the movie. Because I actually, last point I'll make is, I can think of a number of movies that were, you know, like Citizen Kane that I go back to. And I'm like, I know this is the foundational text for pretty much every movie that I like from There Will Be Blood to the Godfather. But I don't like it more than either of those movies. Like, those movies have improved yeah. upon the original. I don't feel that way with Die Hard. And that's kind of amazing. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we do actually have one final question Mike and I have each prepared for each other. Before that, though, I did want to let you know on the next episode of the show, we will be doing Airplane. I picked a hell of 19th... a day to stop doing crystal meth, John. <laughs> the, the 1980 comedy, true comedy classic. Um, Ugh, maybe... One of the movies I have rewatched the most in my entire life, yeah, certainly yeah, in the running. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Airplane, it's it's incredible. Uh, man, I have to do the joke intro for that. Is that even possible? <laughs> no. How do you? What's the What's the bit? I don't know. <laughs> just summarize. But, just summarize that Denzel movie where he's the drunk pilot. <laughs> just <laughs> uh, flight. Yeah, that was too straight summary of flight. <laughs> just read the wiki. But that's next week. Uh, for right now, though, to close the episode, Mike and I each have a final question. Mike, why don't you go? Okay, John. Uh, you're a movie guy. You're a pop culture guy. What mm. would be your yippee Kaye line as you defeat your nemesis? You got any good good lines to throw out there? See, I, I, I know the answer, but I don't know how to make it work into like a badass line because it, it's, sure. it's obviously welcome to jurassic park but with the whole like the whole john hammond like welcome to jurassic that's park. not badass but i was gonna say it's just not a badass line there's just nowhere to go with it um so like i'm I, so yeah I, I, i'm at a bit of a loss i don't know like so so the answer is that i would try to go for that and it would read really weird like the, the room would just be People would just be very unintimidated, uh, which I is just accurate too. To Todd Scraper just being like, "What? <laughs> what? Yeah, just turning his head like, huh? Um, you know, we didn't talk about it, but it is worth noting. That's one of those things that has aged, actually, the most. But it's aged so much that I don't think it even registers how much it's aged. Yeah, that yeah, like, yeah. as a child, like the character was into Roy Rogers and cowboys and Indians and stuff. That is like so foreign to us that it doesn't even register as like something that's aged. Isn't that weird? Like, I'm yeah, just like, yeah, yeah. What I think is that's, that? I, I think I even... that's true for a lot of the cinephile subtext of the movie. Honestly. Yeah. Like the reference yeah, point, think... but it still works. So it doesn't really matter. Yeah. It doesn't matter. It's just, it's just funny. Cause I, I didn't think about it until you said it now, but I'm like, yeah, I guess that is like and, a, and yeah. and, people and I... in the eighties would have understood like that reference. I don't think, yeah. I don't even know what Roy, who Roy Rogers is. I, don't, I, I, don't I would not have right? picked so, that up. As a kid, I can tell you that definitively yeah. when I first saw that. Do you know so. today who Roy Rogers is? Oh, uh, you know, he's a white guy, probably. So, yeah, but see, that's what I'm saying. I, I literally yeah. know nothing about this person. Like, he could have been made up for the movie. The only reason I know that's not true is because I know Bruce Willis did, like, Roy Rogers stuff when he was a kid, and that's why the line came up. 
So yeah, yeah it's weird. Go. It's weird how much it's aged. Um, but yeah, that would be bad. What about you? What's your What's your childhood? I'd probably just quote Tolstoy or something. No, no, John, you know mine. You know it. You know it. It would be. I drink yep. your milkshake. Yep. I'm so mad. I was about to say it, and I, I, I hesitated. No one's going to believe me, but I hesitated for a split second. But I was like, I bet the milkshake thing. It has to be. be that. It has to be. It has to that be. That actually I, works, by the yeah. way. That is intimidating. Yeah, no, I, I would be, if you're holding a gun and you're like, I, I'm like, man, this guy is on something. This, this is not good. This is math. This guy is This is bad. This is no good. Uh, cool. Well, Mike, my, my final question. Um, I referenced earlier that the pivotal moment for maybe all of action movie history is John McClane in the moment, seeing the party, seeing the exit door and running for the door. Uh, if I plop you right into that, right into his mm. shoes there, mm. I'm, let's say I even give you a gun. Uh, you're not a cop. So that's, you know, maybe a little yikes, but whatever. I give you a gun and it's like, okay, this party's being invaded. You have one shot. Run for the door. What do you do? You know, that's like the fun part of this movie is mm-hmm. I think I'm 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 taking the McLean route, but okay. it's kind of like it's kind of like a trap because I think it's about the time that he uses the gun to hold up his weight to jump to the the shaft that it stops being something that I could possibly have done. <laughs> and it's, right. I die. And then I just die. The I, German kills I'm gonna me. I was going to say you might Carl have been dead before me. that point. Yeah. yeah. But, but I'm that's... just like, that's the first moment. It is definitively like, oh, an average person can't do this. Um, <laughs> just like, oh, I'm dead. <laughs> Dang it. You tricked me, John. <laughs> I got you. That was all a plan. Uh, yeah, honestly, I, I think I would just die like there. Like, I don't think... <laughs> I think in the course of trying to come up, trying to make the decision to run for the door, like that would take enough time for them to find me and be like, he has a gun and then shoot him. And just frozen so, in place. Just frozen. Just totally, just not even moved a muscle. Yeah, I would be probably not put down the gun and turn myself in. They just join the hostages. Just like, you know what? Just be another hostage. Just We're all in like, this yeah. together, guys. <laughs> Technically, my odds go up if I'm with all of them. Oh, so here's an idea. Yeah. What if yeah, we? What, what if we faked a German accent and acted like we were one of the terrorists? <laughs> okay, this is now what I would do, just be on this basis. Uh, but the best part is it falls apart even quicker because actually, Mike, I'll, I'll go ahead and say for both of us, neither of us really match the physical characteristics <laughs> of uh, those henchmen who no. are all, I'm pretty sure, well over six two, six three, extremely muscular. Very European looking. I just don't think we really bring that to the table. I gotta be honest. Yeah. And those European yeah. cigarettes would mess us up, dude. So <laughs> just like <laughs> just, just hack it. Like the first thing that happens are like, you know, let's say we let's say we somehow blend in. We don't, but let's say we do. The first thing that happens is they're like, hey, here's a cigarette. And we try to inhale and we just just choke to death. Like we just, just, oh. just die right then. And, and, that's there, how, just and then they're like, Oh, I'm kinda don't think we know this guy. Yeah, it's tough. It's tough. <laughs> Uh, Mike, any other, any final comments? Any final thoughts? yippee ki John! Okay, I was waiting for it. I wanted it. I'm glad you gave it. Uh, thank you all so much for listening. This has been This Film Could Be Your Life. We will see you guys all on the next episode. Mm-hmm.